Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 46 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. On what's been a really busy news week since we last spoke to you, I'm Steve Vischer. With me as always is the birthday boy himself, Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. <laughs> Thanks, mate. How you doing? <laughs> oh, great. Well, uh, t- talk about a busy week, mate. Is the, you know, some, some weeks there's not a lot of news around to talk about and sometimes we're scratching for subjects, but uh, boy, that's not the case this week. And all the news has been Qantas and all of it not so good. That's right. At the same time that Qantas are having their 90th birthday, note, it's not my 90th birthday. I'm uh, in the 40s, not the 90s. Uh, but at the time of Qantas's 90th birthday, they've had a uh, major issue with an A380 that has, appears to have uh, blown its intermediate pressure turbine disc out of its Rolls-Royce Trent 900 engine, punctured the wing, resulted in a turn back to, uh, to Singapore, very well handled by the crew, all people safe, not a major disaster or anything like that. Admittedly, bits of aircraft did fall down on uh, Indonesia, but all recovered and it appears to be primarily due to um, an issue with the Trent 900 engine is the latest news that we've got at the moment. But uh, yeah, not real brilliant for Qantas. They had the uh, uncontained RB211 failure on a 747-400 going out of San Francisco. They also, a day after the A380 incident, had another RB211 failure, this time contained, on a 747 that was also leaving Changi in Singapore to head to Sydney. That also returned to uh, Singapore. So uh, yeah, not particularly brilliant for Qantas at the time of their birthday, but thanks to some brilliant flight crew and a well-engineered aircraft in both examples, everyone's been able to uh, return safely and no lives lost or anything. You know, since these incidents have uh, occurred, we've uh, been getting a lot of email here asking us, are we going to cover this? Uh, What light can we shed in it? Well, the bottom line is that, um, you know, Grant and I are not airline pilots and we don't know. So uh, we thought the best way that we can handle this is to speak to some people that do know. So coming up in this episode, we're going to be talking to Captain Richard Woodward. Now, he's the Vice President of the Australian and International Pilots Association. He's also a Qantas pilot and he's also a very senior uh, A380 captain. So uh, whilst he can't talk really in specifics about these incidents, uh, obviously Qantas is uh, you know very touchy about their pilots talking to anybody, um, we uh, threw a few theoretical scenarios at him and he's going to tell us about uh, some stats on the A380 and also how these emergency procedures would be handled. Uh, what would you expect to see in the, and hear in the cockpit uh, and how the aircraft uh, might perform when it's under these sorts of um, emergency situations. It's a fascinating chat. It goes for about an hour. I'll tell you now, this is going to be a long one, folks, but... Uh, you know, we're really privileged here at Playing Crazy Down Under that we can uh, we can bring these uh, high quality people to talk to us and uh, to let us know exactly uh, what goes on and, and and just to talk about how professional uh, pilots are and, and you know in this in this era, Grant, where uh, you know some of the low cost carriers over in Europe are talking about trying to cut down flight crew numbers. I mean, uh, this is this is why that's just such a silly idea. Oh, indeed, indeed. There's there's evidence all through uh, aviation from ranging from pilots being incapacitated for a variety of reasons through to this kind of scenario. 
where you need all hands on deck and as much assistance as you can get if you're the person flying. So uh, yeah, really great chat with Richard. And then to supplement that, we have a chat that we recorded with Steve Pavinas, the Federal Secretary of the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association. And he talks about uh, a number of the changes that have gone on between the Qantas of the 70s and 80s and the Qantas we have now with respect to engineering. You know, of course, uh, every time we uh, this sort of news comes out, uh, people go to Steve Pavinas for a comment. Now, Steve, obviously, uh, you know, uh, it's his job to represent uh, his members and the, um, you know, the uh, licensed aircraft uh, maintenance engineers. There have been a lot of structural changes to the way Qantas and many other operators uh, work these days. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those situations that they find themselves in Qantas, I guess, where they're in a situation where they're now a publicly traded company. They've got to try and maximise return to their shareholders. They're operating in an environment of much increased competition compared to the 70s and 80s. The balance that they have to strike, and, and of course, this is the big thing that we're all wondering now is how much are they sacrificing in terms of maintenance? They've uh, A lot of maintenance jobs have gone from this country. A lot of uh, Qantas maintenance work gets done overseas now, you know, in Asia and in Europe and places like this. The uh, the A380 in question that had the incident was only recently serviced in Germany by Lufthansa. And, uh, of course, you've also got uh, Virgin and Tiger now. Of course, they don't do a lot of their maintenance here either. So, you know, Steve's out there looking after his members and he's going to tell us about uh, how things look from their point of view. And that was also a really fascinating conversation uh, and that'll be the uh, second interview in this episode. Yep. Once again, mate, we're very privileged to be able to get such great people on our show to have a chat with. We're always doing what we can to get uh, people on who know what they're talking about and uh, can answer the questions we've got that we're pretty sure most of you have got as well. We don't know everything, but we're certainly happy to do what we can to go out and get those who do know to come on the show. Yep. And with that said, let's uh, head off to our interview with Captain Richard Woodward. Well, it's going to be a long time, folks, before we know exactly the circumstances that happened with the uh, the A380 incident, and indeed the uh, the incidents with the engine failures on the 747-400s. Uh, we're not going to sit here and try and pretend we know everything that's going on and what it would have been like to fly that. But uh, somebody who does know that is Captain Richard Woodward. He's the president of the uh, or the vice president rather of the Australian and International Pilots Association, and he joins us now. Hi, Richard. Hi, Steve. Well, welcome to the show, mate. We really appreciate your time. I imagine it's been a very busy time for you with the media. It certainly has. They, I was doing a car on the weekend. They were ringing me at the top of the mountain I was on, so I <laughs> took about 40 or 50 calls. <laughs> well, hopefully now you're not uh, trying to race your car and we're able to sit back and have a bit of a chat. <laughs> Sure, yeah. You've got my complete and undivided attention. Excellent. <laughs> well, awesome. Richard, before we kick off and talk about uh, what it's like to fly a 380 and uh, how some of these uh, in-flight emergencies might be handled, uh, perhaps give our listeners a bit of a background of uh, your flight experience and how you got to uh, become an A380 captain. Sure. Um, I started life in the military as a very young man, and um, in the military I flew helicopters and uh, jets as an instructor, and then I did test pilots course in the United Kingdom, and I came back to the research centre as a test pilot uh, and I eventually was in staff headquarters in the, in uh, Canberra and then left and joined the airline. I've been in the airline 24 years and I've flown every long-haul aeroplane we have. I started on the 747 Classic. I flew the 767. I think I've got about 7,000 hours on the 767 and I flew the 747 400, A330 and now, of course, I'm on the A380 as a captain. I, as you said, I'm vice president of the Australian International Pilots Association. I'm, for my sins, I'm also executive vice president of technical standards for the International Federation of Airline Pilots Association, which means I'm the chief technical guy for 100 and something thousand pilots in over 100 countries. <laughs> You're right. What did you do wrong in a pre- 
previous life. <laughs> well, that's why I don't have many hours left in the day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how long have you been flying the A380, did you say? I did my sectors in France before we had the first aeroplane delivered, so that's about uh, nearly four years now. Now, the A380, I mean, how does it differ in terms of handling characteristics compared to the 747? It's a much heavier of aircraft, obviously, and much larger. And how does it handle by comparison? They're, they're different in the sense that uh, being fly-by-wire, the, the handling characteristics of the 380 are much more tailored. In fact, many Airbus pilots say that the 380 flies like an A320. Now, I haven't flown the A320. I've flown the A318 and I've flown the A380, so I've flown the either end of the Airbus product range. Um, but it is very crisp on the controls. In fact, one of the things you see guys do when they first convert to the aeroplane is that they over-control in roll a little because uh, it's so sensitive in roll. So it's a very crisp handling aeroplane, whereas the, the 747 manifests its inertia much more than the 380 would, despite the fact that the 380 on the average is 100 tonnes heavier. It's a highly automated aircraft, and, and the Airbus, as you say, they fly by wire, and they're you know that's probably the the thing that your average bloke on the street would be aware of. That uh, that's that's the major difference between that and say the Boeing product. With the uh, the cockpit displays, do they have too much of a similarity with the, with the Boeing product, or is it a totally unique experience when you're flying one of those? Oh, they they have very similar screen layouts. So the aeroplane design has sort of settled down to two principal screens in front of the pilots. The primary flight display and the navigation display and they, they, they're called by different acronyms but that's basically what they are and then there's a central warning system and in our case it's called ECAM and in the Boeing's case it's called ICAS but they do almost the same thing and then there's a couple of subsidiary second uh, systems displays and status displays and, and then of course navigation flight management computers and on the side you have electronic flight bag so the displays are similar with internal internally in the displays the methodology is different because you know some are French and some are American, so some stuff is patented and uh, the other company can't use it. And one of the things that annoys me as a, as a senior technical pilot for the world pilots is that we spend half our conversion time learning acronyms for things that do exactly the same. So um, <laughs> uh, that, that gets to be a bit annoying and, uh, and the arming of modes, etc., is announced differently, but almost the same. So it's, it's, a, it's a thing you've got to learn to be an Airbus pilot versus a Boeing pilot. It's just the technology and basically what the airplane's trying to tell you. All the different laws and things like that for the flight controls, the, the different realms that it operates in, depending on how much computer assistance or control there is. Yeah, Grant, the, the, um, they're not that difficult to understand. They seem daunting when you first uh, look at it, but the, there's a, a fair amount of logic's gone into that. I know a couple of the Airbus test pilots, uh, very close friends of mine, and uh, they have a fairly strong influence on on how the thing's uh, logic is applied. So a bit of, uh, even for a non-ply-by-wire pilot, uh, they learn fairly quickly. And uh, Richard, the really good news story that uh, perhaps the media hasn't really focused on, I mean, they're, they're very focused on, uh, you know, the, the headlines of, of broken engines and, and whatnot. Really, the real positive thing that we can take out of this is the, the wonderful performance of the flight crews. And obviously, it's the, the huge amount of training that uh, that you guys undergo and, and continue to undergo even once you're qualified. Can you step us through the conversion process uh, for your average Qantas pilot. I guess most of them would be 747 captains, would they, before they convert? Yeah, the, in fact, we are doing quite a few 747 pilots coming over right now as the 747 fleet shrinks. There's a bunch of long-time, you know, 25-year 747 pilots coming to fly the Airbus, and, and some of them have expressed a bit of awe, and others have struggled a little tiny bit, but a friend of mine who's been in the airline, man and boy, said to me the other day, if i known it's this good, uh, I would have done it two years ago. So um, <laughs> that was an interesting comment from him. But yeah, the, the other people like myself have come from the A3 30. When the airplane first came, the regulatory authority established a requirement that at least two 
crew's worth of aeroplane pilots would be former Airbus pilots. In other words, so some of us A330 pilots all came over en masse because we had the experience to fly the, the bus. Uh, and that, that was very sensible uh, because, you know, once you get a good grip on what the thing's trying to do, then you, your workload becomes easier. One of the dawning things in the profession is you convert to be a captain from one aeroplane instantly to a captain to another aeroplane and totally different. So there you are as a captain who's supposed to have all the experience and knowledge and be the car man in the crew and yet you're struggling to deal with the basics of flying the aeroplane and understanding the systems. But we all accept that and it just means that the 50-something-year-old captain's got to study a little harder than he has done recently. Yeah, because there is, just a slight side note, but there is there is the uh, concept that, you know, you come off captain on one aircraft if you're coming to a whole new series of systems. They, they talk about you flying as a first officer for a while or at least with a Czech training captain until you come up to speed. It's, I guess that's not something that's going on in this case. Yeah, that's been proposed quite a few times. And when you check out as a new, the, the, the simulator training is, is exactly the same for whether you're a, a you know, a first officer upgrading or a captain converting. So you, you do X amount of simulators and that depends if you're an ex-Airbus pilot like me, you obviously don't do as many as a, a 747 pilot. So everyone does a fairly rigorous simulator session program and then you go and do some sectors flying where you do have a check captain or a, a training captain in the other seat. And, and if you're an Airbus pilot like me, once again, that's not very long. In fact, um, I did very few sectors in France, but I flew the prototype around and, you know, prototypes tend to play up. So we got all our practice turning <laughs> things on and off. And a guy here in Australia will do a supervised series of trips to London and the United States, even though he's an experienced captain with another captain. And when they get back, he'll then do a check. Uh, so he's done a fair amount of flying by the time he gets checked to go out on his own. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The system seems to work, you know. As I said, it can be seemed quite daunting for a guy who's got maybe, friends of mine got 15,000 hours on the 747 and converting to fly the 380 as a, as a sort of 54-year-old, but they do. All right, well, let's move on to a theoretical situation. Now, of course, we're not going to sit here and talk specifically about the uh, the Qantas incident because, well, frankly, none of us really know exactly um, the, the situation yet. But uh, what we thought we'd do, Richard, is go through a, a theoretical situation where the aircraft is uh, perhaps on climb out. It's uh, you know high stress on the airframe at that point in the flight. Uh, the engines are running at uh, you know pretty high power settings, and something goes bang. Now you're in the captain's seat. You're flying. What are the initial alarms that you would expect? Do you get uh, an audible alarm? Do you get a combination of that and a visual indication on the on the screen? What would you be expecting to see? Yeah, yes, you do. You get both. Uh, in fact, we have a master warning and or a master caution depending on the failure, and you get an audible alarm, and there is is absolutely no doubt from the audible alarm you've got a problem. Now, naturally, a master warning is red and a master caution is amber. And in this, let's stick it very close to the actual scenario. In this case, we have a severe damage failure on an engine. It goes boom and shudders the airframe fairly violently. You definitely feel that up the front, even though the airplane is so large. The master warning will go off and um, and the red light flashing right in front of your eyes and a, a huge audible alarm and a bunch of ECAM meshes, uh, that's centralized aircraft monitoring, uh, will start appearing on the screen. And the priority ones are the red ones and then you have amber and uh, given the nature of the failure there will be a cascading tree of messages that will appear but the aeroplane is smart enough to prioritise the highest one which is no doubt the engine severe damage um, so the crew's responses are the non-flying pilot normally will identify the fact you've had a failure and cancel the master warning because otherwise you'll have the alarm going in your ears which is quite distracting it turns out that every time you get a new major warning that will go off which is, is one of the issues we'll probably have to deal with out of this failure um, so the flying pilot basically says the words ECAM actions. We used to say a whole bunch of other things like I have control, but that's obvious you're flying the airplane. And the flying pilot takes control of the radios. And so given this is what phase one for those pilots out there, they'll know what I mean by that is in other words, this is a, 
uh, and and sort of checklist you do by rote from memory, and you do it as a as a procedure the crew are trained for immensely, and that basically means that you confirm that the engine has failed, which one it has. The non-flying pilot will read out the uh, ECAM actions because they'll come up on the screen, and that means identify the engine, uh, select the thrust lever that's appropriate, and confirm with the other pilot you're actually closing the correct thrust lever. That's a bit of lesson learned over many years of flying. You close the thrust lever and confirm that that is that engine's actually is the one that's winding back. Then you confirm the fuel control switch that controls the fuel to the engine, uh, and then you select that to cut. It's done. The pilot flying controls the thrust in the Airbus in the bar, in the Airbus, so you close the thrust lever because you want to close it when you want to close it because you're flying the aeroplane. And then when you identify that the direct fuel switch has been identified, then you tell the other pilot to close the fuel control switch. That secures the engine. Given the fact it's a severe damage, uh, then the next follow-up action, of course, is to pull the engine fire switch, which will cut off all the hydraulics, electrics, and the secondary fuel valve to shut secure the engine completely. If it's a severe damage or fire, that switch will be illuminated. It is on the roof, so there'll be this bright red flashing light, so you can pick the one it is. Then after that, it's almost mandatory you'd fire a fire bottle in the engine just on spec to make sure that if even if it isn't on fire that you are going to secure it. So you've done what's called those phase ones to secure the engine. Then the next trick, of course, is to fly the aeroplane away from wherever you are. And then there's a series of follow-up actions. There's much more ECAMs to do, and I won't bore you with the details, but basically you're confirming you've secured the electrics and you've lost hydraulics and a bunch of other things on that engine. Somewhere in the middle of this, when you find a spare breath, you tell the air traffic controllers a fairly basic message like, uh, you declare a pan normally and say that you've had an engine failure and that you're cleaning up straight ahead or something, whatever you've elected to do, and stand by for further comment. And any air traffic controller worth his salt at that stage will acknowledge and leave you alone because he knows you. Uh, you then uh, proceed to clean the airplane up and continue down until you get to the status page on the airplane and and then sort that out. Now, depending on the failure mode of the aeroplane, that could be quite a lengthy procedure. So what we do is we stop the actions and the checklist and then clean the aeroplane up. Now, if the aeroplane in this case was clean anyway, uh, that's not a problem. But if it naturally, if the failure occurred on the runway or just after liftoff, you've got to level off, accelerate and retract the, you know, the first action is to retract the gear and uh, retract the flaps and the leading edges and um, get the aeroplane in the configuration you need it to be and to do whatever you're going to do. Okay. I'll pause for breath there and see if you Got any follow-up questions so far? You've you've mentioned what would happen if you were just on the runway or getting off the runway, the the dreaded V1 cut and so on. Yep. Um, so the the other question then is, in this case, uh, hypothetically, you're you're in the climb out, you're you're um, doing the big climb up, you're very heavy, all that kind of stuff. You lose a donk. I take it you would uh, stop the climb. You'd be leveling off and assessing where you're at there? Yeah, absolutely. There's no point in continuing the climb out. We pretty well use a common procedure. We climb to the safety altitude of the airport uh, and level off there. And, and if we're really busy, and you can be in some of these circumstances, you ask the air traffic controllers if they've got radar to, uh, to give us clearance to the minimum safe vectoring altitude and we stay at that, or if we're not sure of that, we climb to the minimum safe altitude. Being a, a major international airline, we have a performance engineering section that actually looks at the profiles of the terrain around the particular airport and we then if necessary plan escape maneuvers they are predetermined they're in a they're in a page in the electronic float bag and so for instance in Hong Kong where there's lots of high ground around you wouldn't clean up straight ahead over the island you would actually take a few turns uh, to get you clear of the island and we know that also 
though they are often programmed in the uh, flight management computer. So if you have an, an engine failure, the airplane recognises that. It'll come up on the screen. You just have to activate that and, and then you can engage lateral navigation mode and the airplane will fly out on that track for you while you're busy. So let's go back a step. If you have a failure off the runway, the standard thing initially is to clean up straight ahead if in doubt because normally that's an instrument runway and you're covered by the ILS on the runway so you know you're going to clear the train. However, where there's high ground or another issue, the aeroplane will be turned fairly quickly to point in a safe direction and then we continue climbing with all three engines running until we get to an altitude where we know that the aircraft is capable of accelerating basically in level flight and then continuing the climb. And as I said, that is designed by our performance engineers and uh, they're, they're fairly typical for most airlines. The only interesting thing is their traffic controllers don't really know about that so you often have to tell them you've had a phone, and you're turning left onto heading 270 or something because they're just wondering where you're going, obviously. Yeah, but uh, and then they're, they're pretty busy keeping everyone else out of your way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, performance is not an issue, as you probably know, four-engine aeroplane. In fact, the Airbus is fairly unique. If you're light, you do a D-rated takeoff. You can take off with 68% thrust. And when you go to climb thrust at uh, 1,500 feet, the aeroplane um, adds thrust to 90-something percent, so the thrust goes up into the climb. Yep. So, you know, if you're if you're up and away and you're light, the aeroplane climbs very, very well. So terrain clearance is not normally a, an issue, but we do follow those escape procedures. Having said that, a uh, place like Singapore, basically you go straight ahead. Yeah, I, I guess just as an aside, I mean, the, the A380 services appear to be quite popular, Richard, so I guess um, you'd be taking off in a sort of a heavy configuration most of the time, I'd guess. Oh, very much so. Um, you know, out of Los Angeles, we are going to Melbourne. It's a long, long way. And um, we regulate the macroactual weight of the aeroplane, which is 569 metric tonnes. And uh, we take off on one of only two runways we can we can use there. And the, the northernmost runway is nearest our pushback point. So often we have to use full power to get off that runway. If we taxi down to the south, which used to take 25 minutes because we couldn't taxi down some of the taxiways because, you know, an 80 metre aeroplane doesn't fit in some places. <laughs> yeah. Um, that That's a very long runway. But, you know, ground roll of that weight is typically nearly a minute. That's a that's a that's, long that's distance. Amazing. Yeah. It certainly is. And, uh, you know, the sand dunes at the end of the runway look very large when you lift <laughs> off, but in fact, you're well clear of them. Yeah, you're still, you're still within the uh, the minimum cut performance and things like that for the runway, but uh, still, wow, that's – so uh, just you, you mentioned that uh, to come out of LAX because you're so heavy and so on, you've got the engines going full blast – would Qantas be one of the few airlines that has to run its engines at full blast like that? Uh, would Singapore have similar situations or Lufthansa? Yeah, they do. They're, they're flying long routes as well on the aeroplanes. Emirates, the same. They fly long distances. So uh, when you're carrying that sort of weight, I remember I took off a while ago with um, 216 tonnes of fuel on board to go to Melbourne and uh, maximum structural weight. And the weather was so bad, Melbourne didn't quite have enough fuel. That seems interesting, doesn't it, with 216 tonnes of fuel? <laughs> wow. But, uh, I had to divert to Sydney in the end the weather was so bad in Melbourne. So, yeah, all the airlines that are flying these things are flying long distances. The aeroplane empty would go 20-odd hours, but we're, trying, we're asking it to go full 16 and a half, 17 hours, which is a big ask. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just wondering if Qantas might have been uh, powering out of places more than others because of that really long uh, Trans-Pacific run with a full, full load. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt, having said what I just said, that Qantas flies some of the longest sectors in the world. Uh, we're notorious for that, I think. Um, so... Uh, yeah, the, you could argue that the engines are under more stress initially than some of the other airlines. But I, I, 
as I said, all the 380 operators are flying their airplanes fairly long distance on yep. their premium routes. What sort of uh, thrust rating would you be would you be getting out of an en- one of those engines at full power, Richard? Uh, they generate 72,000 pound of thrust. They're called Trent 900, so theoretically you could uh, change the pin setting all the way up to 90,000 pound of thrust because that's wow. what the engine theoretically is capable of. But at the moment they're running at 72,000. And the engine's got growth to ninety thousand. Is probably a way to say that. They're um, we, we've been told they're a, a sort of a, a step up from the RB two elevens that they run on the seven four sevens. Is that true? And if that's the case, is it just an advancement of that technology with the newer engines? Yeah, that'd be a fair comment. They're actually sort of a, a nephew and an uncle type era engine combination that the rb211 core has essentially been scaled up to make uh, the trent series so the the technology the family of the engine is very familiar they're not exactly the same because the fan on for instance on the 380s is uh, huge compared to the um the rb211 series if you look at the two engines alongside each other you, you'd be aghast at the difference in size it's interesting because uh, you've got the 700 on the triple seven and they're going to have the the uh 1000 on the 787 and like we were actually asked by one of our listeners a question that uh had, had us all stumped and that was even after trying to read it on the net and uh, apparently there's a different in, difference in design in terms of the thrust ratios between takeoff and cruise and climb and so on if you're designing an engine that's going to go under a two a twin engine jet as opposed to designing an engine for a four engine jet uh, are you aware of those kind of scenarios yes i flew twin engine wide body jets for uh, maybe 20 years well, naturally, when you lose an engine in a, in a twin, you've lost 50% of your available power, yet you still have to meet the certification requirements for departure. And one of the ways you do that, of course, is ensure that the engine's got thrust capability uh, for run at maximum thrust for 10 minutes or so uh, after takeoff to make sure you get the initial climb performance to get clear of the ground. In a four-engine aeroplane case, you only lose 25% of your available thrust, so you're actually better better off, really. The, the issue then, of course, is the twin engine is essentially overpowered uh, when it's in its normal configuration with both engines running. So its climb performance off the runway is normally fairly startling. And same with go-round performance. They they go very well. You know, when I flew the 767, uh, it climbed like a home angel at light weights. Um, it, it's thrust to weight ratio of a of 767 at light weights was fairly comparable to an early series fighter aircraft, you know, oh, wow. more, point, more than 0.5 to 1. Uh, the modern fighters have much more than that, but um, so the the twin engine aeroplane climbs very well on both engines. The other issue then, of course, is you have to optimise the engine for cruise performance because airliners spend most of their life in cruise. And without boring, without technical details, you have to make sure the engine's running at a core speed that's uh, that's efficient. So that's a bit of a problem for the twin engine designer. Typically, that means and don't hold me to this. There'll be some geek out there will be on my case, but it's about ninety percent <laughs> engine thrust is interesting in jet aeroplanes. Fifty percent of the available thrust comes up to the 90% range and the last 50% comes in the last 10% of the RPM. That varies between engines, so some don't have your listeners ring up and criticise me there. <laughs> That's cool. It's, it just sounds like uh, the famous line about most projects, you know, 90% of the work happens in the last 10% of the project according to the schedule. Absolutely. Uh, you know, <laughs> so the engines produce little thrust when they're idling. Uh, which is fortunate because if you had a massively overpowered aeroplane, a big twin, then taxiing around would be problematic. I, I flew the 777ER at the factory uh, with the chief pilot Boeing, a, friend, a good friend of mine, and I did four hours on that aeroplane. And uh, one of the things, issues, if you taxi down the taxiway at idle thrust at lightweight, it tends to gallop away and you can do 50 knots down the taxiway if you're not careful. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. I think so. So really, what it comes down to is is it's that differential between the maximum takeoff thrust and the cruise thrust. And, yeah. And yeah yes, in essence. That. 
Yeah, in essence, uh, that's true. Um, you're looking for efficiency. Now, obviously, if you build a really big engine on the aeroplane to cater for the engine failure mode, when you get to the cruise, if the engines are running efficient range, then in fact, you you, you struggle to uh, get the efficiency in the cruise, which is where you need it. So these things are a balance, yep. uh, and um, the designers are very good at uh, doing that, luckily. Okay, well, Richard, let's we'll move back to our, uh, our hypothetical situation here. So you were saying that uh, you would consider pulling the fire bottle. So obviously fire is your, your absolute overriding first concern. Absolutely. Um, engine fires or any form of fire in an aeroplane is a bit of a concern. Imagine if you were five hours from an airport and you had a cargo fire, that would be just as concerning as having an engine oh, fire yeah. take off. So we're very conscious of that, and the standard drill is to fire the fire bottle in the engine because if you've pulled the engine fire switch, you've cut off the hydraulics and the electrics and the fuel, you've got no intent to restart the engine absolutely none so it doesn't matter if you fire the fire bottle for those listeners who don't know when you fire the fire bottle it doesn't go down the core of the engine it only goes around the outside of the engine uh, that is to stop external fires internal fires theoretically the metal's designed for a thousand degrees or more so theoretically an internal fire won't do too much and will probably blow out anyway so effectively once you pull that switch you've turned that engine into a cargo pod that's it. It's just hanging yeah, there. Exactly. You've got no intent to restart it. If if you think it's had severe damage, then in your, in your mind, you know, if you try and start it, you're just going to exacerbate the damage. So one of the things you've got to remember is if you're sitting in the front of a 73-meter-long aeroplane, you can't see the engine, and often the crew will ring up and say, oh, there's a big hole in the size of the engine. That'd be, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the only technical description you've got unless you've got a spare second to send a spare pilot down to have a give a professional view of what the engine looks like. You have to assume that any damage and bang you've heard is fairly severe and yeah. it seems strange but that's the case you as the pilot can't see the engine um, we have cameras on board the aeroplane but they only get a, a view of the very tail end of the engine from the one in the fin so you couldn't actually make a proper assessment yeah that was a, that was actually one of the questions that we got from one of our listeners Richard was uh, would they have been able to see that from the, uh, the camera on the tail but you know, you're saying they wouldn't have uh, been able to see much at all no you can only see, you can only see the exhaust cone of the engine uh, from the camera in the tail and uh, the camera under the nose is useless at that stage and it, if we'd bought another option in our airline to look backwards, we might uh, see more of the engine. But as I said, it's not a real issue because the crew are going to ring you when, when things have come down a bit and tell you what it looks like. And as I said, if you've got a fourth pilot, it's fairly common to send he or her back and have a bit of a look out the window. We don't tend to do that because it tends to frighten the passengers a bit if you <laughs> walk back and look out the yeah. window. Yeah, with that worried look on their face, despite how much they're trying not to look like a poker face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I guess I guess on that on these long haul flights, I mean, you would rotate crews around on a say a fifteen hour flight, wouldn't you? So you would have additional resources in that regard. You could call on straight away. Oh, absolutely, and uh, and it's very much a crew concept. You know, uh, we practice a thing called. CRM, crew resource management, and the workload gets divided up uh, by the captain. And, and, and uh, yeah, you'll have spare crews. If you're in the cruise, you'd have spare crew in the rest area, and you just give them a call and say, look, can you go and look at this for me? And just as interesting now, I'm actually a, a, a firefighter in my spare time. So uh, when you, you say you're pulling the fire bottle, I'm just curious, what, what is it firing into the engine? Well, aviation is unique uh, that we're still allowed to use hail on base fire extinguisher. For you, Steve, you're an expert at that stuff. It is a CFC, um, so it's being phased out. The problem we've had is that most of the fire extinguishing agents have never been very efficient compared to halon. So aviation got an extension over after everyone else put away their uh, their halon type extinguishers. And uh, there is a big working group in Montreal and ICAO headquarters working on that right now. And we have identified some different agents that will be introduced as from about 2014 onwards. Yeah, I guess the, you know they they often talk about in in firefighting scenarios about you know how we different sub- substances can be bad for the environment, but uh, ultimately the over 
overriding thing has to be the, the preservation of life. And if that's all we got for the moment, that's what we have to use. That's exactly right. That's my view of it as well. Um, you know, the amount of fireballs that are fired off by aeroplanes around the world is fairly infinitesimal. And uh, one of the things you've got to remember in uh, these highly complex aeroplanes is they're lightweight, so they're made of magnesium and alloy and things. And being a firefighter, Steve, you'll understand if magnesium catches fire, you can't put it out, basically. Well, you don't want to put yeah. water on it, that's for sure. <laughs> no, uh, so... Um, We've got to use a fairly good fire extinguisher. The other thing you've got to remember is the aeroplane's doing 85% of the seat of sound in, in the cruise. So when you fire the bottle, unless it's in a fairly still contained area inside the cowl, then the, the extinguish agent won't have, be actually much help after a few minutes. Let's talk about the multiple redundancies that uh, Airbus is, is – it's often talked about, uh, for instance, in the, in the media and on documentaries that Airbus has multiple redundancies built into its uh, flight control systems. Can we have a bit of a talk about that? If one system was damaged, uh, you know, in, in the case of the Qantas one, it looks like they had uh, damage to components within that wing. What sort of redundancies exist to take over the load? Uh, yeah, that's the standard question. All airliners have multiple redundancies. It's a requirement of design. Uh, and in, if we'll stick by fly-by-wire for a second. The, the flight, we have five flight control computers that control the aeroplane, three primaries and two secondaries. And each of those flight control computers has multiple channels. So in other words, there's internal redundancy within the computer and then they, they, they share information and uh, any computer that's playing up, it gets rejected. The aeroplane can fly quite comfortably with only uh, two of those computers working. And uh, the, the control system, if the aircraft, if we step from the computers, the control systems uh, have their own inbuilt redundancies. We are, we theoretically only have two hydraulic systems. Uh, they're called green and yellow, to keep it simple. They run at 5,000 PSI, which is unusual for an aeroplane these days. But because wow. of the size of the surfaces, we need that sort of power. When the aircraft is first started, that hydraulic fluid is used and trapped by some of the uh, systems in the aeroplane and then they, that effectively means they have their own internal hydraulic system so we have uh, without getting too complex here we have things called local electric hydraulic generators so in other words an actuator pick a surface it doesn't matter pick a particular surface you'll have a hydraulic actuator at one end and then you'll have an electric actuator at the other end. So if the hydraulics fail, you can run it with the electrics. And in the really sophisticated and critical systems, we have a little mini reservoir that has its own fluid trap from that system. So it only not only has a normal hydraulic actuator, it has an electric pump to run the, its own trap fluid, and then it has an electric actuator at the other end. So there's triple redundancy on that actuator area. And remember that most of our services are moved by two separate systems. So you not only have a, one of those for the green system, you have one for the yellow. So for instance, in the a380 you can have both hydraulic systems out in flight you can lose both the green and yellow system and the airplane will fly with the autopilot and the auto thrust engaged pretty well normally that's pretty impressive it is impressive so in this particular case in this in our theoretical scenario that we punch a hole in the wing we've cut a bit of wiring and we may have penetrated the fuel tank we may have a bit of a leak if we look at uh, the fuel system we have um, multiple tanks in the airplane uh, we have four engine feed tanks that hold 20 metric tons of fuel each and uh, and if if you dump fuel, you can't dump that, so you can only dump down to 80 tonnes of fuel remaining. So you've got plenty of fuel on board. If those engine tanks are uh, penetrated because they are above the engine, you can isolate that tank and bypass it through a, a, a gallery. Uh, there's a front and rear gallery. Uh, there's multiple pumps. Um, I think we turn on 28, 20 
eight pumps when we turn the uh, fuel pumps on. So we have a, a huge amount of uh, redundancy in the fuel system to shift fuel around. So even if fuel was leaking out of a tank, that tank would leak to its dry, say. Uh, you still have plenty of fuel on board the airplane. It's just a matter of managing it. Would you consider uh, cross-feeding that to another tank if you had that uh, ability, depending on how long you'd been in flight, I guess? That's true. If you if you think you're going to lose fuel out of the tank, the first thing you do is probably try and cross-feed it to another tank to save it. Uh, there's been some famous scenarios where people have run airplanes out of fuel, uh, one over the Azores, for instance, where they cross-feed it into a tank that was leaking. Yep. Procedures have changed since then, so we do a, a fairly strict analysis of how much fuel we've got on board, what we started with, what we've currently got, and what the tank indications are. And it doesn't take you long to realise that that tank's got a leak, and you just then go through a procedure to isolate it. These are sort of the thing I mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation, where we get down to a point where we've cleared the immediate failure modes, then we have a bunch of follow-up failure modes. And for instance, uh, the crew of that particular aeroplane did messages and cleared them for an hour. So you can see how busy a crew would be in a multiple failure mode. And, and meanwhile, the pilot flying is just doing that, flying. Yep. Focusing he's focusing only on that. He's focusing only on flying the aeroplane. He's also uh, talking to, on the radio, except when they get a pause and the, one of the support pilots will help him there. In this particular case, there are a bunch of other pilots on the flight deck. It was multiple captains, funnily enough. So there was plenty of resources to call on to divide up the workload. And um, as I said, I can't emphasize enough, it's a team effort. And in fact, when we get a pause uh, and we're considering our options, we have a, a quick discussion about what's happened, what are the consequences of that to the airframe and where we're going to go and what we're going to do about it. And in that scenario, even the most junior pilots encouraged to stick his oar in because he may have noticed something or thought of something you haven't thought of. The crew then have a, a, a bit of a brainstorming session and, and they come up with a battle plan and the, the captain says, right, we'll do it this way and everyone agrees, let's go. Now, if you get subsequent yeah. information to that it, it needs to change, then the crew are quite ready to change it so it, it's a taught technique and it's uh, that system is being introduced in operating theatres by surgeons because they understand it's good to get a bit of advice occasionally well that's a that's a major cultural shift over the over recent years isn't it this this concept of crm where you know we don't just sit back and do whatever the captain says we we you know we're all highly experienced uh, pilots so let's get our heads together and see if we can come up with a with a joint solution oh absolutely and and it is actively encouraged you know the the second officers we have a system in in our airline where we have a second officer now those second officers are effectively cruise relief pilots is the term used in the rest of the world. So they sit in either control seat in the cruise and answer the radio and do a bunch of other things, navigation, et cetera, et cetera. And they're entitled to fly the aeroplane, but they're not allowed to land it, um, even though they're rated pilots. So uh, they may be brand new. They may be 19-year-olds with very few flying hours to someone who's come from the military with seven or 8,000 hours. They are actively encouraged to participate because they sit at the back of the flight deck and it's often a person sitting at the back of the flight deck can see something that you may have missed because you so tightly involved in what's going on. Yeah, they're able to step back and get a better view, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. The former training boss of uh, my airline said to me a million years ago, the aeroplane gets easier to fly the further you stand back in the flight deck. And if you've got your back against the flight deck door, you're an absolute expert. That's <laughs> <laughs> one way of almost talking like armchair quarterbacking, you know, the, the day after when it, like what happens online and in discussions like this where, where everyone's talking about what went on and what they thought and so on. And they're very far from the airplane. Oh, that's true. There's there's no doubt, particularly in our industry, pilots are reasonably critical of each other and there's a lot of judgmental uh, things going on at long distance. I talked to the captain of that aeroplane this morning before I talked to you guys and he was pretty comfortable with the fact that they'd done everything right as best they could and, and uh, they were busy 
boys. As I said, uh, because of the secondary failures they got from such a massive engine failure. So the system, the training and the resource management worked in this particular case, even though they were incredibly busy for you know for quite some period of time. It strikes me that modern aeroplanes, when things go wrong, really wrong, they don't go wrong as you practice in the simulator. You don't, don't just have a simple ECAM <laughs> message and deal with it. You tend to have multiple other things going wrong and alarms going off and crew ringing up and saying, oh, there's a big hole in the back of the aeroplane or something like that. So um, <laughs> it gets fairly, yeah, lots of distractions and it gets fairly hectic. So the trick is to remain calm and do what you're trained to do and try and prioritise and the guys seem to have done a brilliant job doing that. Just as an aside about the captain of that flight, Richard, uh, we had heard he was actually undergoing his route check at the time. Do you uh, know about that? Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, he was. He, he was being uh, annual uh-huh. checked by by another captain. Well, I'm tipping and- your past then. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, there's an old saying, if you have a fire on your route check, then you're, you're free for two years. <laughs> but in this particular case, the captain was under his annual route check, but interestingly, the captain who was checking him was being checked by another captain for his checking oh performance. My. So we had three three captains on the flight deck, and in fact, the first officer I've flown with a lot, he's probably got 15,000 hours as well. So we had a very and the and the second officer was there as an ex military pilot with as a military instructor with many thousands of hours. So we probably had about a hundred years of flying experience on the flight deck of that airplane. And one of the considerations when you're when you're in the climb out, of course, is weight and balance. I mean, uh, you know, so you know the option to get straight back to the airport really isn't an option straight away, is it? Because you, you first of all you've got to dump fuel. I mean, uh, at what rate does it, does the A three eighty dump fuel? We could theoretically turn straight back around and land, uh, but that would be a massive overweight landing. And naturally, if you're then trying to go around with an engine out because you can't land for whatever reason, then it does compromise your go-around performance. So you're correct. Uh, the option is to jettison fuel. Uh, as I said, it took them an hour to do all the necessary actions to clean the aeroplane up. We can jettison fuel at two and a half tonnes a minute. So um, we can get rid of fuel at a fair old rate, but you know, coming to Australia, well over 100 tonnes of fuel on board the aeroplane, maybe as much as 140 tonnes of fuel, 150 tonnes of fuel. So if those smart listeners will remember, I said you can only jettison down to 80 tonnes remaining on the engine feed tanks. Uh, so you can jettison maybe 70 tonnes of fuel at two and a half tonnes a minute. You can do the mathematics. It'll take you 30 or 40 minutes to get rid of that. Yep. So I guess once uh, you've got the aircraft cleaned up, then it's just, a, I mean, in the fire brigade, we call that overhaul where you keep going over and going over the situation and checking and rechecking and uh, making sure that everything is running by the numbers at least uh, as best you can get them until it's uh, time to set up for the approach. Correct. As I said, I can't emphasize enough, they're fairly frantically busy doing all the follow-ups and cleaning up the aeroplane and check. And the aeroplane will generate untold status messages to tell you what status the systems are at and you know, go through those. And each of those will have a scenario just to land as soon as possible, land at the nearest airport. And um, we then, if the, we've lost some systems, we attempt to do some resets of uh, those systems to recover them. We do all our checklists that we would do normally and we do um, any abnormal checklists because the airplane can't identify everything that has failed because there are some systems that are pilot selectable. So there are some paper checklists to do to associate with that. They're very few, but they are still there. And naturally, if you really want to, you can. we have an electronic flight bag and we can call up the aircraft flight manual and have a bit of a read if we find a spare minute. I'd but that's a very low down the priorities. <laughs> and, and and one thing that your listeners might not be aware about is that modern aeroplanes uh, have a data link system to the ground. It's used by both satellite and uh, radio. 
and any number of parameters are downlinked on a regular basis. And the, and the airline has a, a system where the engineers is called maintenance watch in our airline, where engineers sit there 24 hours a day in front of the computer screens. And if the airplane had a fail like it had, it would generate a bunch of alarms that would go back straight through the satellite to the console for the engineer and he'd get similar sort of alarms we would get which make him jump about eight feet I imagine <laughs> um, a sensible engineer will wait until the drama scenes have been settling down and then he'll call you on the satellite phone and say you're okay do you need help or in fact he'll probably expect within a few minutes to call on the satellite phone from the crew saying this is what's happened and he'll go yes I've seen that and and he'll just verify some stuff and he'll actually give you some technical advice if you need it on particular systems management. And then in the middle of all this, uh, the operational control of the airline will probably call you or you could call them and they'll they'll hook up a, a phone patch to anyone you need to talk to, uh, even Airbus if you needed to, to try and get some further information. So you can have quite a detailed discussion on the satellite phone about what you've suffered and what you intend to do. Uh, and that's on top of all these other things I've talked about. Meanwhile, jettisoning fuel, uh, reassuring the passengers of the aeroplane safe and setting the thing up for landing so it, it, it's an incredibly busy period uh, it has to be done by the crew just because it's too much workload for just one man basically or even two men really um, and it's vitally important that we reassure, reassure the passengers because the ones nearest the engine have seen the damage and uh, very few people are actually regular flyers and some of them are terrified of it even though it's the safest mode yep. of transport on the planet yep. uh, so you have to reassure them that the aeroplane is capable of flying on uh, three engines and uh, in this particular case, the captain did that very ably. And then finally, after all that, uh, you've, look, you've looked at your options. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Normally, if you have any sort of major fire up to top of climb, you're going to turn around and land back at the departure airport. The only issue would be if that airport is marginal on weather and we can take off in low visibility conditions such that you probably couldn't land back at the airport. So you'd have to have an, an emergency divert airport nearby and you would fly to that and land. So ultimately... After this two hours or so, you can turn the airplane around and land at the airport you came from. Meanwhile, the airport fire services and everyone are waiting for you. So you've got everything set up, fire services, ambulances, people. Everyone knows, your airline knows. You've talked to people on the satellite phone. Your crew are comfortable. You've briefed your cabin crew. Uh, the cabin service manager gets intimately involved with this when you've got a spare second about what you're going to do, what you want him to do, with he or she to do with the cabin. Uh, and normally, you know, straight after takeoff, everyone will be strapped in and there'll be nothing out. But you can imagine in the cruise, you'll have cars out and food and uh, yep. service trays and you've got to give the crew some time to clean the aeroplane up because you can't afford to land the aeroplane with everything out and about you'll just injure people fairly badly you don't you don't want to have those uh, carts running around the aisles not at all <laughs> no they're heavy monsters and they would and you know they tend to fly around and injure people so the poor old cabin crew of you know if you've let them uh, top a climb if something happened then they've let they had everything out they'll need 15 or 20 minutes of frantic activity to clean the aeroplane up and get it ready well richard uh, i've got uh, two more follow-up questions there. Uh, just while we're talking about the the uh, performance limitations to consider. Now, I'll put this in perspective for you. The largest thing I've ever flown is a Beechcraft Duchess. So I, I know that if I was flying asymmetric there, banked and yawed into the uh, into the good engine. Uh, um, in this case, you've got a huge amount of drag caused by this inboard dead engine. How would your approach configuration be different when, you, when you're making this approach? Um, I mean, what sort of, um, for instance, what sort of attitude would you be holding the aircraft in any differently? 
Um, good question. The drag from the engine would be increased. There's no doubt about that. But the aeroplane is so big that you'd barely notice that. That seems terrible to say, but you would barely notice it. The option to land is in uh, either full flap or what's called flap three. The, the flaps heading near buses across the model range are just flap one, two, three, and four. They vary different or flap four. They vary between the angle they select, but it's just so that pilots can convert quickly from one to the other. So if you land in flap three, that gives you a higher go-round performance if you need to go around. Because the critical problem, of course, is on approach phase, if you want to go around with an engine out and the gear down and the initial climb out, that's quite a ask of the aeroplane. Uh, so you would consider that in the go-round performance uh, option. So if you go approach at a lesser flap setting, you've got less drag. Uh, in a, in a worst-case scenario, too, in, in the Airbus, you lower the gear by gravity, so you would have to extend the gear by the gravity method. Once it's down, you can't retract it, so you have to put that into your performance consideration as well in the go-round. So these are all considerations, and it's a big long runway, and you've got to do some performance calculations to work out you can land and stop on that. Uh, once you've done all that, then you set yourself up for the landing. As to the actual approach, the aeroplane speed range is quite low compared to a 747. The aeroplane's about eight knots slower down finals because of the much bigger wing. So, you know, max anyway, you're only doing 138 knots, which is incredibly slow for a big aeroplane. It's very slow. Uh, so even with failure modes, you do have additives, you know, of uh, 15 or 20 knots depending on the failure mode. So your approach speed might be 155, 160, 165 in the worst case scenario thereabouts. But a big long four-kilometre runway, that is not a problem. So uh, the faster you go, the lower the attitude, funnily enough. There will be cases where you actually have a slightly higher attitude, but they're all within the slight in the normal range the pilot would expect to see. Uh, and your flare height is essentially the same as well to land the aeroplane. Sometimes at the faster speeds, of course, the, you need lesser flare. The aeroplane's got such a big wing on it that if you raise the attitude too quickly, it'll just float along a few feet off the ground, which gets fairly embarrassing. <laughs> so, like one of my landings, balloon. <laughs> yeah, well, it's easy to do. Even in a, a big airliner, if you raise the nose, particularly in a 380, you'll float easily. Um, so the and technique, yeah, and, and then fall out of the sky. So the technique is just yeah. to rotate the aeroplane gently to the flared attitude and close the thrust and it'll go on. Uh, we typically flare the aeroplane at about 40 feet above the runway. Okay. Now, uh, my understanding is that the uh, the thrust reverses are only on the inboard two engines. Is that correct? That is correct. That's um, uh, Thrust reverse is not considered in performance calculations uh, by certification. Uh, the aeroplane's got to be capable of stopping without the reverses. And so they're a secondary mode. Uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is they're heavy and you don't need them. The second thing is the outboard engines hang out over the grass. Yeah. So um, reversing those will just cause you, especially if they've just mown the grass, it'll be <laughs> exciting. So they're not required and they're fairly efficient anyway. So only the inboard engines have reverse. So in this particular scenario, only the number three engine would have gone into reverse. Sorry, Sorry? some of the reverser panels fell on Batam Island. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, that, that would, of course, would create some asymmetric um, braking thrust as well. But I guess so close, such a big aircraft, it wouldn't cause too much of a veer. You wouldn't have to do too much to, to modify that. You do notice it, but it's not severe because, as you said, it's inboard. If it was an outboard engine, it would be eye-watering. But um, uh, <laughs> you, you do have to use the pedal steering and older the nose or steering, but uh, the pedal steering and the braking will compensate for that. But it does cause a bit of a swing as it as it deploys naturally. Okay, so you so I guess you, you you've mentioned you know like you, the, some of the considerations that would go into 
coming down. They in, in this scenario that we're talking about, you know, you've lost number two, possible wing damage. You know, I guess if you've lost your hydraulics and all that, what does that do for your braking? Uh, would you be coming in and, and things like that? Well, we, we talked about multiple uh, redundancies earlier, Grant, and the brakes are uh, uh, the same as the other systems. They have a, okay. a, an incredibly sophisticated uh, braking system that the normal and the alternate system, the aeroplane will switch to the alternate system by, by wheel groups and also by individual wheel pairs. So it will automatically identify if brakes are not working and switch to that and it's hardly noticed with the crew. In fact, the stopping performance is the same. And then after that, uh, we, we have three remaining methods, including putting the park brake launch. Seems a bit funny, but we can apply <laughs> spark brake. To a handbraking. <laughs> and, and effectively do a handbraking. Now, the aeroplane is sophisticated enough to apply different brake pressures to the wing wheels versus the body wheels. Um, and in the worst case scenario of the absolute emergency braking, you would blow some tyres, but you would pull it up. Now, yep. naturally, with a degraded braking, you'll get very hot brakes, uh, and that is an issue. Um, yep. One of the things you do if you've got super hot brakes is you don't taxi the aeroplane, for instance. And yep. uh, you, you've got to be careful about letting the fire services get too close to it in case they deflate violently. Yes, uh, blow so, the plugs, so to speak. Yeah, the aeroplane can actually go bang and blow tyre shreds everywhere. So you've got to be careful. There are a bunch of considerations once you've got the thing safely on the ground about whether you're going to taxi it. And uh, we probably should cover whether you're going to evacuate it as well because that is a bit of an issue for the captain to consider. Okay, now um, in this, uh, like, okay, the non-hypothetical situation, apparently they were unable to shut down engine number one. It was still running. Was that because the communications were damaged? Would it have automatically gone into a cruise setting or a... uh, was it stuck at the last setting they'd set it at? Or are, you, are you aware of that? Are you able to talk about that one? The issue with that uh, engine, it appears that some of the wiring in the wing may have been cut. We're not actually confirmed that yet, but the failure mode of the engine is to stay running. So the safety mode is to stay running. Uh, they had thrust control of that engine, but there was a famous Airbus incident recently in an A330 where Cathay crew lost thrust control of their engine and they yep. landed at very high thrust setting at very high speed and did a wonderful yep. job. Uh, that engine, in our case, was at idle and you probably saw the vision of the fire crew trying to put it out by firing water down the intake, which is funny because jet engines love water to a point, and so that'll actually the engine would love that going down the intake. Is ultimately, <laughs> you'd have to put a lot down the intake to get it to stop, to put the flame out, in other words. So that was yep. a bit of an issue because the crew had pulled the engine fire switch for that engine and it wouldn't stop. But it is a safety mode. It's a, it's de, it's designed that if you lost uh, you know electrics, the engine, it will keep running for you. So it's a, a fairly sensible decision to make. Yeah, definitely. Well, Richard, that's, mm. uh, that's really highly technical stuff, and we really appreciate you giving us that insight into the A380. What's the situation now with the Qantas thing? I guess the ATSB will be investigating and it's probably likely to go on for quite some time. Yes, it will. Uh, there'll be a lengthy process. They've been looking at the aeroplane for the last few days and funnily enough, they're interviewing the crew of the aeroplane today as part of the process of just of getting all the facts. Uh, then, of course, there'll be a lot of frantic work with both the engine manufacturer and the airframe manufacturer to come up with a preliminary report. Now, that preliminary report will be put out fairly quickly but it'll just be a basic factual report they'll actually say these are the facts of the event and, and they won't make any conclusions it could take up to two years or so to get a full report of because of such complex failure now the ATSB don't naturally have uh, a380 pilots sitting around internally in the ATSB so they'll be very much reliant on expert advice from other people uh, to write the technical parts of that report that's not unusual they the reporting times by the ATSB are as good as anyone else in the world so the public out 
out there will only hear brief factual information and naturally there'll be a flurry of media when that factual report comes out and then sometime downrange there'll be another flurry of media as the final report comes out. But the industry will very quickly be made aware if there are any issues uh, that the industry should deal with. Well, Rolls-Royce is already saying that it's it's something with the 900, but it's the 900 only, not the 700 or the 1000. They've, they've yeah. already made a statement like that earlier about um, eight or 12 hours ago, I think it was. Yeah, correct. Uh, it, it seems if it's boiling down to maybe an oil feed issue to the intermediate pressure turbine, it uh, caused the turbine to run hot. But, you know, that's only speculation. But uh, everyone's being very circumspect. Uh, all the other Rolls-Royce Trent operators have been boroscoped their engines well. A boroscope, for those people who don't know, is a big, long optical fibre camera that you can stick down through the core of the engine and have a look at it without pulling it to bits. So yep. uh, you can look at most of the engine uh, using that technique. It does take quite some hours, but they've done that. And yeah, they've identified a couple of other engines that need changing as a result. Yeah, they were saying about eight hours per engine, and also that it's a, it's it's almost because the uh, EASA, the European Aviation Authority, they uh, they came forward with a uh, an airworthiness directive, I think it was, or a, a bulletin saying that uh, you needed to boroscope the engines, looking at the oil feeds and things like that. And the indications are, and rumor once again, speculation is that this is an extension of that existing issue. That it's it's now more than just a, a warning. It's a it's a hey, you got to do something situation. Yeah, correct, Grant. It was actually uh, an airworthiness directive issued in I think August last year, and it did say that there was excessive wear, wear on the drive around there. Now that may have been caused by poor oil feed uh, and uh, those engines. It was a directive, so anyone who uh, had an aeroplane registered in uh, European Union would have that inspection mandated. Every other operator in the world normally goes well. If it's a directive in that regime, it'll be a directive over here as well. So everyone inspects their engines theoretically in the in the in those sort of scenarios. A bulletin, some airlines don't, some airlines do, depending on their, their culture. Well, look, uh, Richard, we could go on for hours like this. I just find this sort of technical conversation just really fascinating, but uh, we'll, we'll let you go there for now. Uh, on behalf of our listeners, we really appreciate you spending so much time talking to us today, and uh, we'll definitely have to get you back at some time and have a bit of a chat about uh, your military flying. That sounds fascinating as well. Oh, well, certainly. There'll be no problem at all any time else. Excellent. Thank you very much. Captain Richard Woodward, the Vice President of the Australian and International Pilots Association. Thanks very much. See you later, Steve. Thanks, Richard. Pilots, prepare, refresh and renew at Flight City. Whatever stage of your career, Flight City makes up keeping and enhancing your skills easy and economical with their two state-of-the-art flight simulators. The fixed-base simulator replicates a Boeing 777 and the full-motion simulator can be a Seminole, King Air or Citation. Trust Flight City simulators and instructors to help you train for sim checks. Prepare to fly a bigger aircraft, renew your type rating, do the jet orientation training course and more. See flightcity.com.au or visit Flight City at Jan. Hi, I'm James Williams. And I'm Dave Gray from Podcasters Emporium. Join us on episode 26 of Podcasters Emporium, where we talk about podcasting with Skype, but this time it's on a Mac. We get all Skype-wise with the Belgian from the Nightcast about how he does it with his Mac. So visit our website at podcastersemporium.com to download the show on Saturday the 20th of November or search Podcasters Emporium in iTunes. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Holos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. (laughs) 
Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. Okay, joining us on the line now from the Australian Licensed uh, Aircraft Engineers Association, the ALAEA, is their secretary, Steve Favina. Steve, thanks very much for joining us at such short notice. Hey, g'day, guys. Okay, Steve, uh, thanks for joining us. And the uh, path we want to take today is we want to have a quick chat with yourself about who you are and uh, your history and your union's history. And then from there, we'll um, we'll have a discussion about the uh, recent Qantas A380 engine incident and some other maintenance and, and engineering incidents that have been um, cropping up. Uh, yeah, Okay, well, before we go uh, into the specifics of uh, what's going on here, uh, of course, Qantas is uh, very prominent in the news the last couple of days. But, Steve, can you tell us a bit about the ALAEA, what uh, the scope is, who, you, who your union covers and who they look after? Oh, yeah, no worries. So we're an association of professionals, uh, which are licensed aircraft engineers. I mean, our association was formed, I think, in 1960 when uh, the old fellas uh, drew up the constitution. One of them's still on our executive today, so that's really good. Uh, we've got 3,000 members across the industry in Australia and I'd say that uh, two-thirds of those work for Qantas or its related entities. Uh, Just about myself, yeah, uh, look, uh, I've been in the industry since 1986 and uh, uh, did my apprenticeship and time and I got myself licensed in the 90s. Uh, I'm an avionics bloke uh, and currently licensed on four aircraft types, uh, both Airbus and Boeing. Now, of course, the union is is always in the news and there's a lot of politics that goes backwards and forwards, uh, a lot lot of argy-bargy about uh, work agreements, wages, this sort of stuff. At the moment, of course, Qantas is having a really rough trot and we want to sort of try and drill down into why this is happening. We speculated a lot of a lot in the past about, you know, perhaps how, what percentage of these are perhaps routine maintenance things and all of a sudden Qantas is in the news, they're just picking up anything that in the media is just picking up anything that's Qantas and running with it. Have you noticed in this, this era of economic rationalism, I guess, an increase in the percentage of incidents for the amount of operations that are going on these days or has it sort of remained constant over the years? Years or how does that look from your members' view? Yeah, well, look, in our industry, there's always going to be things that go wrong with aircraft. And I don't know how many times in the last three or four years I've taken calls from the press saying, hey, there's been an been a, a, a engine failure or there's been a defect on an aircraft and they've had to divert. And I'll just take the call and I think, well, that's not even newsworthy. But uh, certainly uh, in the last two years, there's been four very, very big ones. There's been the, uh, the oxygen bottle that's blown out the side of the one over Manila. There's been the 330s that have been uh, taking a few nose dives, uh, particularly the one over Exmouth. And uh, the two uh, engine failures that we've seen in the last two months, the 380 and the one there at San Francisco, both of them uncontained, which uh, is uh, not your normal engine failure. And uh, look, uh, do we know that any of these incidences could have been prevented? Well, um uh, it's really hard to say, but uh, uh, a lot of the expertise that Qantas once had in all of their fields is uh, is being closed down and shipped off uh, offshore or to uh, other joint um, entities that Qantas has uh, within Australia, and certainly they're losing a lot of their expertise that may just uh, save someone's life one day. Okay, because there was also the uh, recent QF6 uh, 744 that also had an a, a engine failure. Sim- it seemed to be similar to the one in San Francisco in that there were reports of sparks and everything shooting out the back, but I think that one was contained, wasn't it? Yeah, that one um, appears, from what we know at this stage, to uh, possibly be a fan blade that's let go, and that's going to that's going to get into the engine and uh, get yeah. get spun around, and, uh, and there's going to be arcing and sparking and a bit of um, fire out of the back when you've got a surge. What's what's fully contained though, and it's probably more typical of a normal engine failure, but the two uncontained 
ones are a real concern where you've got your components flying up through other parts of the aircraft. Yeah, because they're, they're supposed to have enough um, shielding and shrouding to contain everything, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, the engines are primarily shielded around the fan area, down at the back where the turbine blades let go, which are all the, uh, what appears to be two discs recently. Uh, it's a little bit harder con- to contain. So, But nonetheless, it's happened, and uh, we say that uh, Qantas uh, have, um, have been cutting costs in areas. Uh, it was only earlier this year that they closed down at uh, Rolls-Royce Centre of Excellence and Mascot, and uh, along with it, a lot of expertise went out the door. And when you say it's going out the door, Steve, where's it going out the door to? I mean, it's got to go somewhere. Where, where are they shipping this work to? Well, firstly, when uh, work goes out the door, you close a facility like the Rolls-Royce uh, shop in Sydney. Uh, what, what are you going to take? You're going to get a lot of the guys who are over 50, and mind you, the average age in our industry for licensed aircraft engineers is uh, 48, working for Qantas. Uh, a lot of the guys over 50 will tend to retire. Uh, and then you're going to take some of the younger guys who've been uh, learning their trade and they're going to move off into other departments and so on. Uh, But the work itself uh, will go to areas uh, such as the uh, 380 case. As Qantas will say, it's been maintained by Rolls-Royce or uh, or Lufthansa. But uh, mind you that uh, over the years, Qantas has been a leader in their field and quite often they're the ones who feed back the information to Rolls-Royce where they can start investigating some of the things that get picked up uh, during the overhaul of these engines. So, So in the past because they had a dedicated Rolls-Royce group they were actually more proactive with working with the manufacturer to uh, provide information and perhaps come up with uh, concepts and, and ideas that the manufacturer hadn't considered. Yeah that's absolutely right and what, what we're saying we've got an AD that relates to this uh, latest Trent engine that uh, asks for boroscopes down the back of the engine along the shaft to see uh, what your dimensions are and those sort of problems get picked up in workshops such as the one that Qantas had and they, they were very proactive in their feedback to the manufacturers of all, all engine types and unfortunately they've now lost that ability. Yeah, because we're, we're hearing that apparently two of the four engines on the um, the A380 that was used as the backdrop at the uh, recent 90th birthday celebrations have been found to exhibit a, a potential for that same problem thanks to the boroscope yeah, dare, examination. They say they're, uh, they're redoing all those boroscopes that were called out in the AD and uh, I don't know whether they've tightened up on the tolerances but uh, nonetheless uh, I, I think now that Qantas are uh, well and truly aware of the seriousness of this issue which uh, it's the right thing to do to check those engines properly. So do you think, Steve, that they've, they've moved to a culture of being more reactive than proactive? Is that is that something that your members would be telling you? Oh, that, that's for sure. I mean, we've raised countless uh, things behind closed doors that we've, we've tried to resolve with the airline, and uh, they write back letters uh, in very acute uh, terms where they're trying to wangle out of some of the concerns that we've raised. For example, there was an aircraft that was uh, maintained up in Hong Kong recently, and three of the four engines weren't mounted correctly. There's, uh, there's your uh, curved underside of your engine mounts and there's a, a washer that's um, got a depression in it and uh, it sits on the underside of the bolt. Uh, now, up in Hong Kong, they actually had some of those washers flipped upside down and they didn't have enough washers installed. Uh, the engines were actually uh, thread-bound or sitting on a collapsible um, component, which was the washer that was upside down. So um, our engineers in Australia picked that up after a month of uh, these engines uh, being in service on, on a Qantas 747-400. The engineers actually filled out all the paperwork and ticked a box that comes with that, that it's a major defect that needs to be reported to CASA. So uh, it goes up through the quality assurance departments and uh, the quality assurance departments in Qantas have actually uh, changed the forms that the guys have filled out and unchecked the box to say that it's a major defect that needs to be reported to CASA. And we 
we went absolutely uh, bananas when we had a look down uh, the CASA uh, website where they publish all of the major defects and noted that it hadn't been reported. And uh, through our investigations internally, we, we said to Qantas, look, you're breaching uh, the CASA regulations here. This is a major defect that must be reported. And uh, uh, they've come out with every excuse under the sun and uh, ultimately uh, claim that they're doing the right thing by uh, not reporting too many things to CASA. <laughs> not overloading CASA, in other words. Yeah, and, and look, I, I talk, and it's really good to have an opportunity to speak to someone from the press who's not just going to grab the headlines. This, this is a really serious concern. You've got an engine, or you've got an uh, overhaul facility in uh, Hong Kong who have been uh, replacing engines on all sorts of aircraft. Now, it's very important for them to go and uh, revisit some of the engines that are hanging off the other aircraft that are flying around the world. But unfortunately, when uh, Qantas uh, see it as a a, uh, non-major defect and don't report it to CASA, well, then nothing's going to get done uh, for those other aircraft that are flying around. If we were to go back to, say, the 1980s, Steve... How would the culture have been different back then with regards to reporting this sort of stuff? Uh, look, uh, w- when we were uh, running government-run airlines, I mean, the, the cost factor was taken out of it and people were encouraged to report things that they noticed in the course of their duties. We, we've seen so much of a change since the 70s and 80s. I mean, uh, I was talking to some engineers the other day, 1971, the combined Qantas TAA apprentice intake, that is your first year apprentices for that year, was 400. Now, I don't know how many aircraft they had flying around in those days, but I dare say it would have been less than half of what the size of Qantas's fleet is today and uh, uh, it was earlier this year that Alan Joyce came out and made an announcement in the press that he's doing the wonderful thing for young Australians have just taken on 100 new apprentices so yeah. they're taking on quarter of the apprentices as they did in the 70s with a, a much larger fleet that really uh, indicates to us that their commitment to uh, to maintenance and safety is not what it once was. Well especially when you consider that it, I mean definitely 100 is less than the uh, what they used to do but it's a, it's a you've got to say it is a big step up from where it was at one point, which was none. They weren't taking any apprentices for a while. Yeah, there was uh, three or four years there in uh, the mid-2000s that uh, they didn't take any apprentices at all. And then there was uh, the uh, shameful events of, uh, I think it might have been 1999 or thereabouts, where all of the apprentices completed their time. And on the final day of their apprenticeship, they were told that there was no job for them. They didn't just uh, take out the ones who didn't uh, make the grade. They actually sacked uh, the apprentice of the year along with that. So it, it is a step up to take on 100 apprentices, but it's nowhere near the level that's needed to replace a very ageing workforce. And if you're saying too that the average age of, of the Lammies out there is, did you say 48? Yeah, that's that's right. The ones working for uh, for Qantas Airways Limited is uh, 48, we believe. At some point, there's going to be a huge attrition rate uh, just, just through retirement, uh, if that's the case. So they really, I mean, it sounds to me like they need to be really ramping those apprentice numbers up. Well, they really do need to ramp those apprentice numbers up if they're interested in continued maintenance on, on their fleet as it once was done but what really concerns us is that uh, we think that Qantas are well and truly aware that they have an ageing workforce they're not interested in replacing them because they don't intend to have maintenance in Australia in the future. Yeah which is why they weren't really taking any um, apprentices on and so on. Yeah yeah it's uh, stick your head in the sand and hope that we can uh, do it a different way and that way is to use uh, various facilities outside of Australia and some joint ventures within uh, knowing full well it's uh, the uh, capacity of those uh, those facilities isn't going to deliver the same quality product that uh, come out of Qantas's in-house uh, maintenance facilities. With these overseas facilities, um, and they get them done all around the world, I think, Qantas, don't they? Um, it's probably fair enough to say that the, the engineers are, are of a reasonable standard. Do you think the failure more is, I mean, you're talking about um, something as relatively, you would think, obvious as a washer not being put on properly. 
to hold an engine on. Is that a failure of the quality control or is there a quality control process? I'm sure there would have to be, but is it is it is that inadequate? When the work goes to an overseas facility, uh, we're often criticised for denigrating those engineers who work overseas, but the licensed engineers working in Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Frankfurt and England, there is an equal grade to the engineers in Australia. They're, they're, they go through essentially the same training and we don't criticise them at all. But uh, what happens when an aircraft goes overseas, Qantas look at the price that it may uh, uh, cost them to carry out something such as a sea check and internally they'll uh, work out how much it costs to employ so many people in Australia and have continued operation of their facilities and then uh, someone like Hayco might come out and say, right, well, we'll do it for $100,000 uh, knowing full well that it's very difficult in Australia to match that price. But then when the aircraft goes up there and uh, if I can use Manila as an example where the 330s were maintained for a number of years, we had uh, and I presented this to the Australian Senate uh, when they were discussing the Qantas Sale Act, uh, the uh, Manila facility was actually at one point there running with two licensed aircraft engineers. They were uh, supervising 40 unlicensed engineers who were trolling through the aircraft, pulling it to pieces and putting it back together. Now, as a licensed aircraft engineer, supervising even two or three unlicensed engineers um, is a bit burdensome and you have to uh, have to uh, get around all of the jobs they're done. It's not possible when you're, uh, when you're supervising with two lameys the work of 40 unlicensed people and that's when things get missed and that's how they do things cheaper. So the licensed aircraft engineers overseas are doing the best they can with the resources that they have available. Well, the whole concept behind um, consolidation of these processes and so on, as we're told by a number of business analysts and so on, is that you get the economy of scale where you get you don't have to maintain a, um, a large engineering workforce to work on just a few aircraft. That large engineering workforce can work on multiple ones. As Air New Zealand has done a lot of their engineering, they, they don't just maintain their own aircraft, they maintain a, a number of other airlines' aircraft. Is, is that something that Qantas could have looked into? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very uh, valid point. I mean, we've got new New Zealand, who uh, you wouldn't really call them a hub of uh, aviation. They're, they're basically a, a end of the line for possibly Air New Zealand and some Qantas planes that fly through there, and I think Emirates do as well. But the excuse from Qantas is that um, when it comes to in, in-house maintenance and insourcing, that a lot of the carriers aren't in a position to put their planes through there. But if New Zealand can do it, how come Australia can't? When we talk about consolidation of facilities and the ability to work on aircraft in mass and have lines uh, uh, sitting side by side. That, that used to be Qantas. Uh, what we're now seeing is not consolidation, we're seeing fragmentation. We've got uh, 737s have been sent to Malaysia and Singapore of late. We've got 747s and 767s being sent to both Singapore and uh, Hong Kong. We've got 330s in Manila and uh, they're now also uh, being done in Brisbane in Australia. We've got the 380s in Frankfurt. Qantas planes are now being serviced or maintained all over the world. It's very hard to keep track of uh, what's taking place in those facilities and your quality control certainly isn't at the same level as it is when you've got the aircraft being maintained in your own backyard. So when Alan Joyce comes out, he, he and of course they're very media savvy Qantas and they were very quickly out stating that uh, 92% were done last year here and 85% this year are being maintained here. So what are they including in those figures then? 
don't know whether you'd call them media savvy or not. I think uh, some of the press should have picked up on this. They said 92% last year. That means that 8% was done outside of Australia. They're saying 85% this year. That's 15%. They've almost doubled their work in 12 months. That's been carried out in overseas uh, maintenance facilities. I wouldn't call that media savvy at all. In fact, uh, I, I think a lot of the uh, phrases that Qantas continue to, to run through the press, such as, you know, we, we always put safety first. I think they're starting to run a little bit thin. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. Well, it's easy just to roll out the same uh, cliches over and over again. But uh, when the results of uh, their work are being publicly displayed, well, then uh, that's another story. <laughs> I, I used to do some uh, work with Telstra and the, the joke we had for a couple of Telstra departments was uh, if they keep saying it long enough, then the universe will shift and become reality. <laughs> yeah, I think some of the realities are now being seen on uh, the ground in residential areas in Indonesia and uh, <laughs> where yeah. it shouldn't be. Yeah, unfortunately, reality is reality and the universe hasn't shifted to, to become, yeah. as they keep saying. But uh, I, I know um, you can say a lot of maintenance is done in Australia, but that's you know, maintenance can include anything from uh, re- reseating a seat on a rail or fixing a, a light that's come, like a, the exit sign that's been knocked down or things like that. So, yeah, a lot of that all gets done here but it's it's how much the heavy and and vital maintenance is going on that that when they when they talk about maintenance at Beef Dunya, they're very uh, careful to choose their words correctly. They Sometimes they refer to maintenance and sometimes they refer to servicing. Now, servicing is uh, your line maintenance checks that take place every day when an aircraft lands and an engineer goes out, kicks the tyres, does a transit check, tops up the engine oils and sends it on, on its way. They're careful that they say the last servicing check was carried out in Australia, knowing full well that the last heavy maintenance check was carried out overseas. Uh, and then they'll, uh, as they did yesterday, I think it was, they come out and said that uh, the aircraft was last maintained in Avalon when they were referring to the RB211 that... uh uh, had um, what looks like a, a fan blade let go a couple of days ago. Uh, but they uh, um, they carefully avoided all of the questions about engine maintenance on that particular aircraft because they know very well that they've just shut down their Rolls-Royce uh, Centre of Excellence in Sydney. So while the aircraft may have had a, its maintenance done in Avalon, the actual engines were not maintained there? Uh, at this stage, it's unclear as to where the engines were maintained. We believe it may have been an ex-British Airways uh, loan engine, but uh, I'm sure that'll come out when the investigation's uh, undertaken. I want to I want to move away from Qantas uh, in a minute and and look at the the rest of the industry. But uh, just briefly, Grant just mentioned Avalon there. What operations are, ha- are happening down there? I, I think I'd read somewhere recently that they perhaps scaled those operations back a little as well. Yes, it was uh, in 2006 that Qantas said that they're going to shut shut down uh, the heavy maintenance facility in Sydney that once was the uh, fine centre that. Uh, gave Qantas uh, essentially its reputation that it had over many years. A thousand uh, jobs were made redundant uh, through that process and they shut down the hangar, hangar 245 there. Uh, Qantas said that they were going to shift all of that work to Avalon in Victoria, who who were at the time carrying out some work on, on 747s. They had a workforce of 900. So they've shut down a facility in Sydney with a thousand employees. They've shifted work to Avalon, that is Qantas 747 heavy maintenance work where they had 900 employees. It was four years ago. They've got 650 employees there today. So they've dropped 250 employees when they really were supposed to be picking up the work of a thousand. So we know very well that uh, a lot of those aircraft actually had their heavy maintenance done in the overseas facilities that we talk about. And in one instance, I think it was the first aircraft that went overseas after Qantas closed down at Sydney Heavy Maintenance Facility. Qantas's quality assurance department went up there 
did an audit and found a whole lot of uh, deficiencies in the facility itself. They come out and uh, I'd stand corrected on this, but I think uh, my recollection is pretty close to the mark. The Quality Assurance Department advised Qantas Management that they should seriously reconsider continued use of that facility. Of course, they're still using it today. So uh, the uh, warning signs have been there for quite a period and uh, we uh, do take our opportunities in the press when they, uh, when they uh, arise and there's a lot of things going on behind closed doors that uh, we have a lot of concern about. With the quality assurance, did they, has the quality assurance team gone through Avalon as well? Have, have they made any recommendations for the operation there or is that not being assessed? It's just fortunate for us that the quality assurance report for the Singapore End facility fell on our laps. Uh, we're not privileged to that information uh, on Avalon, but we uh, would fully suspect that uh, they regularly audit the Avalon facility as they would do any facility in Australia and uh, and also their ones overseas. Okay, I was just intrigued to, to hear because like, if they're looking at winding down Avalon or doing less and less there, they might not do as many audits, things like that. So that could be an indicator of what they're, what they're considering. Yeah, I, I don't know what their uh, long-term plans are for Avalon. We do know that they've said that 747 fleet's going to slowly be phased out and we think that's a perfect opportunity to start ramping up the 380 work within Australia to replace the ageing aging fleet. Uh, so there's plenty of opportunity to carry out 380 maintenance in Australia where I think Qantas are going to end up with 21 aircraft. Instead, they've elected for Lufthansa to do it, who I believe are going to have uh, ultimately less aircraft than that in their fleet. There is the counter argument, which is there's not going to be that many Trent 900s here in Australia for us to be able to set up a centre of excellence on that engine to, to train people and, and get the payback for their experience. The, uh, the same with the A380 maintenance. You know, we're, we're, we're out here in Australia. Not everyone's going to bring their aircraft to us. That, that, those are kind of arguments which... Realistically, I'd say if you if you actually set up that centre of excellence on the A380 and the Trent 900, there would be you could probably try and get Singapore down here and maybe instead of them going to Lufthansa, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Qantas are going to have more Trents than uh, Lufthansa are, uh, but uh, they've chosen that facility for uh, to carry out the predominant part of their maintenance. Uh, but uh, that uh, argument doesn't wash with me uh, from uh, recollection when I was an apprentice going through the Melbourne heavy maintenance facility where they had an engine shop. I remember going out wiring up some uh, some uh, engines and at any one particular time the Qantas uh, Melbourne facilities were working on Dart engines which uh, I think uh, were on the uh, old uh, Fokker friendships. Yeah, that's uh, the one. And, uh, and uh, they were also at the same time working on CFM 56 engines on 73 sevens and uh, I think if memory serves me correctly they started servicing the CF6s on on uh, the 767 fleet at the same time so one engine facility actually would have the ability to uh, work on a number of different engines at any one point in time those guys are not just specialists on one engine type only Qantas have well within their capability to open up an engine facility within Australia to do all that work. It's interesting you talk about that uh, that engine facility at Melbourne uh, Steve I remember I, I've got a, a, an uncle who worked for Australian Airlines at that time uh, and still works for Qantas today um, but we got a tour through that that facility back in about 1992 it was actually the day that the first uh, 400 series 737 arrived and uh, part of that was a tour through the facility and I clearly remember this spotless workshop um, it stuck with me today and they had a 727 up on jacks uh, the thing that struck me the most about that facility was how clean it was and um, how spotless it was and I, that's not to say it's not that way today I don't know but just uh, when you mention that facility it always brings back that the memory of that day and uh, for yeah. someone like myself who well I only had my student pilot's license at that time it was just amazing to look at yes it's a it's a very barren place these days and and when I talked earlier about uh, the 
Qantas Quality Assurance Department going up to Singapore and some of the other reports we've seen from overseas, they talk about things like lack of lighting and uh, insufficient tooling in the hangar, uh, improvisation with blocks of wood where calibrated tooling should have been used. They're the sort of things that uh, found as uh, deficiencies in these overseas facilities that concern us and certainly wasn't the sort of thing that you would have seen in the Tullamarine or Essendon workshops of the engines uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Qantas, uh, one of the reasons Qantas keep talking about going overseas is the um, is the cost side and uh, Australian labour rates are higher than overseas but it, it seems like if you focus solely on the bottom line eventually you run out of everything uh, it's it's like that race to the bottom mentality and, and I've mentioned this a number of times over the past few years it, with respect not only to engineering and anything that we buy these days in terms of clothes that fall apart within a year but, um, equipment and so on that is designed obsolescence but also you're seeing it with passengers who are uh, r- doing a race to the bottom where they're trying to get the cheapest possible airfare and then they complain about the lack of service and no one's differentiating on they're all competing on price alone, which is ridiculous. You should really compete on quality and, and reliability and so on. Yeah, look, it's pretty disappointing when you fly Sydney-Melbourne and uh, the price of your airfare is cheaper than taxi fare into the city, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> a, lot, a, lot, a lot of the overseas facilities, um, uh, like I said, the problem isn't with the quality of the licensed aircraft engineers there and their pay rates are no less than ours. A lot of Australian engineers do travel overseas and pick up work and uh, look, pay rates over there, depending on your uh, the, the value of the Australian dollar at the time, are relatively uh, similar, but the tax breaks being offered in those overseas places uh, uh, does attract a lot of Australians over there. But uh, the bigger problem is the amount of engineers that they have working on the aircraft at any one point in time, particularly licensed engineers. We're talk- we've been talking here solely about Qantas, Steve, but uh, if we look a bit wider around the industry, um, how does Virgin Blue and uh, now we've got Tiger Airways as well, how do they operate? Are they Do they have a different operating philosophy to Qantas or how do they structure their maintenance? Yeah, new startup facilities. Uh, Tiger, we don't know too much about. I don't think we have any members working for Tiger, and uh, I'm not too sure whether they have too many engineers. The uh, Virgin Blue uh, have a company called Virgin Tech, which uh, predominantly carry out uh, their maintenance. We were, we were very disappointed to get contacted by Virgin the other day to say that they're going to outsource all of their engineering work, both line maintenance and heavy maintenance, on the new aircraft that they're going to receive on the uh, A330. The uh, heavy maintenance work on Virgin's aircraft is there's there's been less of less less of a need for it of late because they've got a newer fleet. But uh, when they have done their heavy maintenance, it has essentially been overseas, which is a concern for us. But with a lot of these uh, startups that we've seen in the last 10 years, Jetstar, Virgin, Tiger, uh, one of the concerns that our associations had for some time has been the lack of engineers that they dedicate to their servicing work. That is when the aircraft do a transit at the terminal. Qantas are not the worst airline in the world. They actually send an aircraft engineer, a licensed one, out to every aircraft that transits at uh, certainly the major capital cities anyway. Virgin uh, Blue, Jetstar don't do that. They uh, have adopted a different uh, model for their for their day-to-day servicing of aircraft and essentially they do a first flight of the day inspection and then do more intensive inspections at the end of the day when that aircraft comes in. Uh, and uh, look, um, the, the concern that we have with that is uh, it's, um, it's quite often that the aircraft will land at the end of the day at one of these carriers and the tech crew will note quite a number of defects on the final leg. But the rate at which defects are recorded on final sectors of the day or the final sectors of the flying day for a particular tech crew are far higher than the on the first flight of the day or the second flight of the day. And what concerns us is that tech crew who are trying to do the best by their company and get their uh, aircraft from A to B and out again 
uh, storing defects uh, on possibly uh, a napkin or something, thinking that it may not be a serious issue that needs to be reported at the gate during a turnaround, but they save it for the end of the day. And uh, it's uh, not uh, anything uh, bad we say about uh, the tech crew, but the commercial pressures are seeing the statistics showing that when it comes to the reporting of defects at some of these start-up airlines. The interesting thing too is that they can focus on you know every minute counts. I work in the railways and I mean that's a mantra there, every minute counts. But you get one defect that's been left for a while that then leads to, may have started as something minor and then progresses to something major. By the time it gets to major, it's probably going to cost them a hell of a lot more money to, to fix then than if they'd fixed it when it was a minor fault. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a bit like that. Uh, one thing that we often hear in the press when we hear from airline management after an incident and we've been stuck into them a bit, they always tend to say that this was an isolated incident or, or something along those lines. But you have a look at the fatalities on aircraft uh, crashes around the world and you could probably say that they're all isolated incidences. But the thing that's not isolated or conjoined with that is the fact that uh, we have a different um, attitude or outlook on maintenance when it comes to aircraft. And Qantas always talk about uh, their safety and their reputation and all that sort of stuff. Uh, That's all got to do with the past. Uh, What what we need to know is that uh, they're going to continue with that uh, good reputation into the future. And uh, when they're starting to consider cost above safety, uh, that's when we start to see uh, engine shops shut down. We start to see uh, all sorts of changes. And uh, of course, uh, the one of late that uh, certainly uh, sends a very clear message to every aircraft engineer in Australia that Qantas uh, done to some of their engineers at Qantas Link. They've uh, stood six of them down, subject to a disciplinary hearing because they reported defects on cockpit doors, whereby you could open the cockpit door with a paddle pop stick. So what do they do? They stand the aircraft engineers down and tell them, we never told you to look at the cockpit door. You were to do a general cabin inspection, not a detailed inspection. You shouldn't have picked up this defect. We're standing you down. We suspect you've done this deliberately as part of an unprotected industrial action campaign. We're now going to uh, investigate and possibly uh, take your job off you. And that is a very sad day when an aircraft engineer is being told he must avoid his obligations under CASA Regulation 51, which is the reporting of defects, and uh, turn a blind eye to such things he becomes uh, aware of during the course of his duties. That's just shut down the whole, uh, if you see it, report it concept. Now everyone's too scared for their job. It's uh, very disappointing when uh, Qantas IR people are running agendas that relate to safety on aircraft. Well, how do we address this problem? I mean, is, is this, for example, something that needs to be addressed at a political level where we have an overarching framework set by the government that every airline must adhere to with regard to inspection regimes, uh, reporting of defects, this sort of stuff. Is is that something that's not being... I mean, uh, there must be a framework that exists already that covers this sort of stuff. Does that need to be looked at to perhaps force these airlines to look more seriously at maintenance? Yeah, definitely uh, we've got uh, got the regulator, CASA. Uh, we, uh, we have been very open about it. Uh, we don't think CASA do their job properly. They're meant to regulate this industry. We've gone to CASA with a number of complaints and uh, we tend to uh, have them uh, swept under the, under the carpet or they don't answer uh, for periods of time. Uh, and look, even even personally, uh, they've had a bit of a swipe at me uh, about six months ago when I stood for re-election to our union. And just to, uh, just to fill you in on the story there, uh, the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association had a joint application for freedom of information with Channel 7. We wanted to know about CASA's auditing of all of their overseas maintenance facilities. It took us two years to get them through the federal courts. Uh, sorry, uh, it wasn't the federal courts. It was the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And uh, we finally had the Administrative Appeals Tribunal issue directives about six months ago ordering CASA to release the information that we'd requested. So we won that little battle with them. So uh, through that 
period, I'd requested several things of uh, CASA to look at, never got anywhere with them, but uh, I uh, actually went up for re-election to our union and someone decided to challenge me. Now, as a licensed aircraft engineer, and I've been working for our union full-time for four years, you can't hold an active ticket uh, to continue practising if you've been off the tools for two years. You're still a licensed aircraft maintenance engineer as defined by CASA, but you can't practise anymore. So the candidate running against me for federal secretaries written to CASA and requested information about the status of my licence. Now, within a couple of days, CASA have issued uh, straight to the other candidate personal details about my licence status. I rang uh, CASA's Freedom of Information Department to find out why they'd released personal information of mine and uh, without provocation or anything whatsoever, the head of their FOI department's actually come out and said, will you expect CASA to be able to release information about overseas maintenance facilities? Why shouldn't we be able to release some of your personal details? And uh, uh, <laughs> obviously, obviously very disappointing when CASA are taking a view like that. I've now had an apology from the head of CASA for uh, their breach of the Freedom of Information Act, and I'll, uh, I'll let that one uh, lie. But uh, we uh, expect CASA to regulate this industry. We don't think they do. We're at the point now we're going to have to drag the uh, Minister for Transport, Tony Albanese, into it because uh, something's not working at the moment. And Albanese, I guess, is a Labor minister, so I guess he's he's probably more philosophically aligned with, with the ideals of the union movement. Is that something that you can take as a positive? Anthony Albanese, um, uh, from, uh, as I understand, uh, he's got left-wing grounding of the Labor Party, uh, which is uh, where our union tends to lie. We haven't actually personally been to him with any of our concerns at the moment. We're sort of sort of like we're gathering a dossier of information, things that have been disregarded by the airlines, things that, things that CASA have turned a blind eye to. Uh, we're just about ready to knock on his door as we speak and start taking some of those issues up. Uh, I, I have absolute confidence in uh, the Minister to investigate uh, uh, thoroughly, as should be, uh, but uh, certainly if he's not prepared to take those steps, then it's time to uh, knock on the door of the opposition. I know Ben Sandilands over at uh, Plain Talking Blog on crikey.com.au, he's uh, had a number of comments regarding CASA and the ATSB and uh, how it's it's almost like they're, they're They've gone over and they're now working for the uh, airlines rather than um, than regulating them. I would imagine the people working at CASA, that is their airworthiness inspectors, are under quite a bit of commercial pressure as well from the airlines. Uh, I think uh, I was reading the other day just some articles about it and uh, there might be some genuine fear from those so airworthiness inspectors, that there's going to be legal ramifications if they try and come down too heavily on Qantas. I mean, Qantas have got a hell of a lot of money when it comes to uh, yeah. comes to uh, legal legal arguments. I mean, I talked about uh, engineers and paddle pop sticks uh, before. Uh, you know, on the same day that that happened, I was in the Industrial Relations Commission in Brisbane. They'd actually uh, thrown us in there to try and get some orders to prevent us uh, finding too many things wrong with aircraft. I wasn't sitting there arguing uh, the case before an uh, industrial relations person in Qantas actually had a QC there or as now known senior counsel so they uh, don't uh, they don't spare any expense when it comes to uh, comes to the legal battles they want to get themselves into yeah no they, they do bring in the QCs quite quickly yes they do well Steve um, perhaps we can move on to some of the specifics of these incidents that are happening with happening with Qantas and some of the technical aspects of it I know it's very yep. very early days now um, but have you what are you what are you hearing from your members have they been able to report back to you some of their findings at all do we know uh, what stage of that compressor blade has failed or anything like that uh, yeah look it's um, the 380 appears to be uh, a disc that holds together some of the turbine blades. Uh, there's a section of it that's um, been photographed and uh, printed in the media. It looks like a third of the blo- uh, of the disc has been uh, found, and uh, I'm hoping that they can ascertain from that uh, 
the actual fault that caused it in the first place so that we don't see it again. Yes, our members do report to us uh, things. Uh, it's uh, probably surprising some of the things that we're aware of and uh, that uh, Qantas don't like us to know about. But uh, when we do talk publicly, we are always well briefed by our members on the facts and circumstances behind some of these things that uh, we discuss openly. Yeah, you've also got to be careful because there's an ATSB investigation underway. So uh, comments outside the investigation or things like that have to be taken with caution, yeah? I don't think the ATSB actually uh, have a look at public comments made by our union when they're carrying out carrying out their investigations. So I don't think anything I say publicly is going to influence some of the decisions they are going to make. Oh, not so much influence, but more so much release of information before they actually release it officially, that kind of thing. Yeah, but if uh, if someone from the public releases it, I mean, the first uh, release of information we saw over the 380 was some Indonesians running around with parts of a Qantas aircraft. Stuff's always going to get out before the ATSB are there uh, on deck to investigate, but uh, yep. uh, they're still going to gather that information and their outcome is going to be reflective of the, uh, of the cause of the defect or failure in the first place. And what sort of path do they take, the ATSB, with regard to investigation? I mean, what are they looking for? They, I assume that would be detailed in regards to looking at how the engine was maintained right through to the specific composition of the parts that have failed and you know, to see if there's some sort of material failure. Um, and are they also looking at whether there's been some sort of systemic failure in the maintenance regime of this um, you know, that may have led up to this? I mean, this aircraft, I think I read somewhere, was on its 831st flight, so it's only been in service two years. In terms of a commercial airliner, that's not a lot. Look, I've never been privy to the process that the ATSB go through when they carry out an investigation to the extent that they've invited me along to see what they do. What they'll generally do, though, is uh, be at the location as soon as uh, humanly possible to commence their investigation. Uh, And uh, what we see beyond that is uh, sometimes some preliminary reports that they issue uh, and then usually several months later they'll come out with some final final reports. In fact, sometimes it takes years before they do that. I'm assuming that they gather all the data, documents related to the particular incident, anything that could be uh, even semi-related, uh, have a look at how maintenance has been carried out. I'm assuming that they'll interview people and things like that. They tend to do a pretty thorough job, so I'm assuming that's underway at the moment. But uh, uh, we'll uh, wait for the reports to come out like everyone else. And we're seeing with the Trent 900 engines, Steve, I don't, I don't know how much how familiar you are, you are with them, but the um, the uh, A380 can also come with engine alliance engines. Are we seeing any sort of reliability issues with the engine alliance engines that are fitted? I believe Emirates, for example, are running those on their A380s. Yeah, I think Emirates have got them. Uh, don't know too much about the engine. I, and and to be honest, uh, even the uh, even the Trent 900s are all new to me because I'm not licensed on that uh, aircraft. But the, the 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 concepts are similar. I mean, with your uh, with your uh, fan blades and turbine blades and uh, the other parts that uh, go to the uh, the uh, thrust that's delivered out of those uh, donks. I mean, uh, I don't know if there's been any issues uh, with the other type of engine used on the 380. But again, it's early days. Uh, what was it? 800 sectors have been flown by this aircraft. I think uh, the AD related to the detail inspections, uh, boroscope inspections of the shaft uh, was a mandatory AD that was required on the Trent 900 engines after 400 flight hours. So there's gathering uh, gathering evidence and things that are going to lead to airworthiness directives and other other uh, technical data that's going to help identify the reliability of these engines as uh, they're used, uh, used on a more regular basis. It's the joys of new stuff coming in, isn't it? The more new things you have on one particular aircraft, the more likely you're going to have some incidents and fun in the first few years of operation. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 
can't remember who it was, but uh, didn't they say, uh, never fly the Model A of anything? <laughs> yeah, it's like never buy a version one from Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, that's right, something like that. Yeah. The um, the 747-400 that they're running around, um, these these engines that I think QF74 and I think the one the other day, they're running the, I think you said it's the RB211 engine, is that correct? Yeah, they're running uh, running the RB211s on the 747-400s at the moment, but uh, they've also got a few aircraft with uh, CF6s on them as well. Okay, so with regard to the, um, those, I mean, those engines, types have been in service for what 25 30 years so perhaps there'll be a far greater well there would be a far greater knowledge base when it comes to investigating what's happened with those engines that have failed i would take yeah the engines are flying around on the 747 400s today uh, and mind you the same or similar types of engines are flying around on different versions of the 76 uh, there's so, such an extensive database on engine failures and uh, uh, and the like that uh, there's a wealth of experience i can draw on there when it comes to uh, say the uncontained uh, engine failure out of San Francisco two months ago and also the uh, contained one the other day. So I'm sure they'll be able to uh, ascertain from the information already available uh, how, uh, how how to best rectify those concerns on those engines. Uh, new, new aircraft, uh, the... Uh, the Trent uh, 900 engine, of course, there's not too much data on it, but uh, uh, from what my understanding of the engine itself, it's just it's just a bigger RB211 anyway, so they should be able to uh, adopt some of the same principles and learn from the understanding uh, understandings of their earlier RB211 uh, engines uh, that they've already been uh, working on for many years. There's been situations in the past where you've had like a bad batch of, of blades that have caused problems. Uh, there's also the scenario where an airline decides they're like as as you've said before in the past, uh, Qantas were very proactive, um, and other airlines were very proactive about taking engines off for servicing before they came due. They 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 ran a bit of a buffer, and so you'd actually miss out on getting f- extra flight hours out of an engine theoretically. So. If you look at it purely on the bottom line, you have the situation where some airlines have been known to um, fly the the engine pretty much right up to the point where it's time to take it off and, and give it that service to try and maximize the benefit from the cost of servicing. And then next thing you know, you start getting a few uh, engine fires on takeoff and things like that, and, and suddenly you've lost the whole engine. So I, I think it was back in the 90s, there were a few cases of that with, with a couple of airlines and they backed off, went back to the previous mechanism. Yeah, they probably uh, probably decided not to run their engines for so long. I, I mean. Engine monitoring is something that's uh, a very exact science. I mean, uh, airlines are constantly monitoring the increased engine vibrations and oil consumptions on those uh, those components uh, as they uh, extend their life. Uh, but uh, I was talking to one of our uh, mechanical lamies that's a member of ours uh, yesterday, and he was saying that uh, Qantas used to be so precise in their maintenance. Uh, there was some component in the engines. I don't know whether it's one of the um, one of the shafts or or uh, or some of the um, testing that they'd done on the blades, their actual tolerances, they used to exceed the component maintenance manual. The tolerance was something like a, a thousandth of an inch for this particular component. The Qantas used to actually have it so tightly tolerated, they used to do it down to a millionth of an inch. Uh, it was That's what I call going over and above what uh, yeah. what is mandatorily required. But uh, when you're uh, sending that uh, work overseas, and mind you, when engines go overseas, uh, there's no guarantee you're going to get back the same uh, engine 
engine part or the uh, engine engine itself. I think it's a case that they drop the engine off and they pick a new one up and they don't know where it's come from. That's certainly not uh, something that you used to uh, see when all of it was done in-house. In fact, yeah. I, know, I know that uh, Qantas actually used to make some of its own replacement parts um, in the past for uh, certain engine components. Yes, I'm sure they did. They used to do a lot of things in the past that they don't do anymore. But of course, uh, all that costs an awful lot of money when you um, increase your tolerances and you, you become more exacting about your equipment and you and you really drive to make sure you've got the best of the best of the best on your aircraft and the best of the best of the best flying them and all that kind of stuff, that's going to cost a lot of money. And these days, the argument is you can't afford to do that anymore because you're going up against airlines that aren't doing that and they're, uh, they're undercutting you and taking away your uh, budget-conscious traveller. Yeah, so there's, there's no doubt the quality costs money uh, and uh, certainly when aircraft engineers find defects, that also costs money. So if you want to save money, what do you do? You reduce quality and you make sure your engineers don't find as many defects. And then in, instead of trying to argue like, hey, we've got the best reputation ever and uh, yeah, sure, fly with the other airlines, but uh, you know we're we're good, that kind of thing, they go, okay, well, we'd better cut costs so we can compete on cost alone. Yeah, no, look, uh, we talk a lot about the other airlines uh, and uh, the uh, Qantas safety reputation and where they're going in the future, but uh, I probably should uh, point out as well that uh, I certainly wouldn't think that Qantas's quality is any less to any other airline because essentially... They're sending their uh, their engines uh, and some of their components and maintenance to facilities that work on the other airlines that we compete with uh, out of the Australian Airlines here. So, oh, yeah. so certainly they're no less quality now, but they definitely will come back to the pack and we're starting to see that publicly as well. All right, Steve, well, uh, time's starting to get the better of us. I just have a couple of quick questions before we finish. Um, you mentioned at the start there that you were an avionics guy. Now, of course, we're moving into a, a new era with regard to technology. You've got glass cockpits and ADSB, all this sort of stuff coming in. Uh, it must be a real challenge to keep up with the avionics side of stuff in this this new world of uh, digital stuff, you know, moving away from the steam gauges. How have you seen that go over the years? Oh, look, I'd, uh, I'd have uh, full faith in your avionics engineers to learn about any new item or equipment that comes up on an aircraft. I've had to do it myself, and uh, I think uh, very sadly you'll find that we uh, mostly enjoy what we learn about our trade. But uh, one of the developments <laughs> that we're actually, well, one of the developments that we're actually seeing in the industry that is is of a concern to us is that uh, CASA are trying to align themselves with the European system of maintenance when it comes to licensing of aircraft engineers. Now, an avionics engineer was uh, traditionally three trades, electrical, instrument, and radio. And your mechanical uh, licensed aircraft engineers were airframe and engine specialists in their field. Uh, the regulations, though, over in Europe have uh, recently seen a shift where the electrical trade is being taken away from the avionics engineers, and it's going to be now learnt uh, and uh, delivered by the mechanical engineers. And uh, look, I have no doubt that uh, the mechanical lamies in, in Australia are, uh, are going to be uh, fully capable of uh, undertaking electrical maintenance, but uh, why would you take away the expertise from those people who have learned from day one about their trade. And for me, I took avionics. My initial trade was electrical. I spent essentially four years in an electrical workshop learning that trade. And it's hell of a lot I know about electricity and how it flows through an aircraft. And when CASA are supporting new regulations 
that are going to essentially make, uh, in uh, comparative terms, take your household electrical work and give it to the plumber. Uh, it's uh, a concern for uh, for those people who are going to continue in our industry. Having said all that, I mean it's you know it's an interesting time and it's it's a tough time for for everybody in the industrial sector and and no less so obviously in in your line of work. However, um, we we do need uh, apprentices and we we've seen a shift perhaps uh, back towards some technical schools and technical training colleges. So, what would be your message to uh, to young people that are considering a career path, uh, being a uh, being a, a lamey, um Obviously, it's something that would be a, uh, even in this environment a really uh, challenging and interesting environment to learn. Well, look, I asked my seven-year-old son what he wants to do into the future. Do you want to be an aircraft engineer like Dad? And he sort of gave me this strange look as if uh, uh, I don't think so. And then he, uh, then he said he wants to do something. He wants to play computer games for a living or something like that. The message, though, that I, I, I would give uh, any uh, any aspiring aircraft engineer is that the job can be thoroughly rewarding and enjoyable. Uh, we talk a lot about Qantas. I don't think there'd be too many aircraft engineers uh, working for that airline today who don't say that they love Qantas. It's the way it's being run at the moment, and the people there, the management team that are driving uh, change through the business that uh, in uh, a lot of cases is not for the good. But uh, we do have a union like uh, ourselves. Sometimes we're out in the press publicly talking about things, uh, trying to uh, get us back to the stage where engineering maintenance uh, uh, on aircraft uh, should be a priority and it's something that is going to deliver a future for those people. So our association will continue to push those lines, both industrial and technically and uh, hopefully sometime in the not too distant future there'll be a very rewarding career for those uh, young people who want to get into our industry. Okay Stephen they can find out information if, if uh, you know, we have a lot of younger listeners that follow the show if they, they're interested in finding out uh, how to become a licensed uh, aircraft engineer they can go to your website which is the alaea.asn.au That's right and we've got a section on our website that actually uh, steps through the process on how you can become a licensed aircraft engineer so anyone interested should uh, go and have a look at our wonderful website. Absolutely, and we'll pop uh, links to that in our show notes. Uh, Steve, we really appreciate, uh, we only really made contact with you yesterday, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your Sunday to uh, speak to us so quickly. That's that's wonderful. We really, really appreciate it. Hey, no worries, guys, and I hope you enjoyed it. Ciao. Thanks, Steve. It's been great. Welcome to your flight experience. You're strapped into the pilot seat of a 737 flight simulator. You advance throttles and power down the runway. Cleared for the visual. You're up and away. Flight experience is exhilarating, unique and a whole lot of fun. It's the ultimate gift. So strap in someone you love with a gift voucher today. Your destination, one of 20,000 airports around the world. Call 1-800-737-800 or visit flightexperience.com.au. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Want to advertise? your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com
Well, there we go, Grant. I tell you what, uh, what a busy episode, and I can tell you, folks, normally one of our episodes would take several weeks to put together. Well, we've thrown this one together in, in the space of about uh, four days, so uh, it's been a lot of hard work. Uh, but uh, boy, that is just some absolutely high quality information from uh, you know both sides of the fence. Yeah, no, definitely. And look, many people may turn around and say, "Oh, look, Steve Pavinas, uh, he's got a, his uh, position to push from the union. They're going through negotiations and contract disputes and all this kind of stuff." And so, you know, he's going to paint things in a bad light for Qantas management. Be that as it may, whether that is the fact or not, a couple of big things that came out from chatting with Steve. The first is that if Qantas had have kept their uh, Rolls-Royce Centre of Excellence going, they may very well have been picking up on this problem well before the uh, the engine let go on the wing of the aircraft. Uh, they may have had the engine off beforehand. They may even have been supplying information to Rolls-Royce to help them improve the Trent through uh, real-world monitoring and, and observations and, and coming at it from a different angle from the manufacturer. So there was that. There was also, you know, Qantas have decided that they're not going to do a lot of their heavy maintenance. They're moving it out to others who are uh, on the whole cheaper. But there was the opportunity there for Qantas to have kept their uh, very experienced and very uh, well-versed engineers and set up their own outsourcing space. They could have set up an engineering space where other airlines would come to them for servicing. Admittedly, they may have been a bit more expensive than some groups overseas, but they would have been able to uh, rely on their reputation of being top quality and best of uh, breed center of excellence to uh, bring in the work. I mean, as he pointed out, Air New Zealand is doing the same work and they're at the end of most people's routes. They're they're not at the center. So, uh, if Air New Zealand can do it, why didn't Qantas? So those are two big things to take away from that, regardless of uh, which side of political fence or organised labour versus corporate management you might rest on. They're two big considerations to to look at in the in the bigger picture. Yeah, and you know, I know I said this before, Grant. If, if for nothing else, and you've got a very sceptical public now, Grant, who's looking, is opening their newspapers every morning and looking at the news and listening on the radio, and they're hearing nothing but bad news about Qantas and their maintenance practices. The thing that I always say, Grant, is it just looks better if they're craft are serviced here. There's really, okay, it might cost a bit of money, but at what price safety and what price reputation? If Qantas cannot afford to have this sort of uh, controversy going on all the time, and if it costs them a bit more money, that's really going to do them probably a, a lot more good than the short-term cost savings that they're making at the moment. Yeah, no, indeed, mate. And uh, look, it's a classic question, what price a reputation? Yeah, that's very true. And the other point is too, Grant, and I, I made this point in a blog post recently, that most people choose to fly Qantas knowing that they're going to pay more. It, it's kind of like Apple computers theory. You know, they'll say that uh, you're paying a premium price for a premium product. And Qantas really operates on that marketing strategy as well. Well, that premium product really has to extend far beyond the uh, the in-flight service and, you know, the drinks trolley and the in-flight entertainment. It's got to go right through the whole chain of uh, operations. And uh, perhaps, you know, this is something that good that might come out of this. Maybe they'll, they'll think, well, you know, maybe we do need to start uh, changing some of our practices here. And uh, if indeed that's what's found to be lacking in this case. At the bottom well, line is, Grant, that we just don't know at the moment. No, indeed. You're right. And uh, look, you know, as... As Steve Pavinas pointed out, how can you say uh, our safety is better than anyone else when your aircraft are being serviced by the same place that services your competition's aircraft? Uh, so that, does that mean that your safety is better, but your maintenance is the same? How, how does that work? You know, that kind of thing. So anyway, folks, we'll leave it there for this week. Now, of course, this was an unscheduled episode. You might remember in the last episode, we were talking about our Flight City Perth competition, and we were going to have the uh, results of that competition drawn before the next episode. Uh, of course, we didn't plan for all this news to happen, and this is actually a special one. So we're going to hold it over for one more week and uh, we think probably out of this episode we might actually pick up a few more uh, new listeners certainly that's what we're hoping so uh, for those of you who just want a bit of a reminder I'll just play the jingle again you should see us now 
Okay, name that tune. In fact, name which airline used that jingle. Email us here at uh, with your correct answer at uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. We'll put you into the draw. We'll, we'll be drawing that live on Ustream, and we'll probably do that in a, another few days from now. We'll certainly let you know via Twitter and Facebook. And, uh, of course, the winning prize grant is a, uh, a flight in the flight simulator, the Boeing 777 flight simulator over there at Flight City, Perth. Oh, yeah, I'm jealous as. I'm wishing I could get that. Oh, and be able to get to Perth, but you know, hey, I've, I've flown in the 737 simulators and I'd love to try a 777. Yep, so uh, Grant, we just play that jingle one more time? Okay. Let's do it. Okay, now we've had a lot of entries already, I can tell you. We've had quite a few entries uh, flood in. Most of them are correct. A couple of people are a little bit stumped by it. Um, what's a hint we could give? Probably if you're Grant and my age, you'll remember it a little better. How's that for a hint? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our age and uh, living in Australia. Uh, oh, that'll do, that'll the... do, that'll do. No more hints. Oh, okay. Dang. Okay. <laughs> okay. Playing crazy down under at gmail.com, folks. If you want to send those entries in, it's not too late. Uh, we're recording this on the 9th of November and we will be planning to draw this. Uh, we've set up a Ustream channel. We just got to get some of the technical aspects of that sorted out because we've not done that before. But uh, we're going to do that live and the uh, the results will come out in episode 47. Uh, that episode is going to feature the last two of our Red Bull Air Race season wrap ups with Nigel Lamb and Pete McLeod. Yeah, that's right, mate. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, drawing the winner on that and finding out which lucky person gets to go fly as triple seven sim well that's about everything we have for you on this uh, rather uh, special edition of uh, playing crazy down under thanks very much for listening folks we certainly hope you enjoyed it for those of you who are new listeners we've got uh, 45 fine episodes prior to this one and you can also hear us on flight time radio every second week and you can also hear us every week on the airplane geeks podcast with our australia desk report yeah that's right and don't forget that our segment on flight time radio is sponsored by plane hook aviation services and uh, so once again uh, a big thanks to Captain Richard Woodward and also to Steve Pavinas. These two gentlemen made themselves available to the PCD community at very, very short notice. They spent uh, a long uh, a long period of, uh, of their days, particularly Steve. He uh, spent his Sunday morning chatting with us and we really do appreciate that. Uh, this is the sort of thing that you'll find in new media that you really can't find in the uh, the mainstream media and this is one of the great things about it. So uh, with that in mind, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, Grant, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at planecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. 
As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Well, good day, folks, and <clears throat> my scratchy voice. Oh, you can read it? No, I'm just clearing my throat. <laughs> and there we go into Richard and into an ad break and into Steve Pavinas, and we come out with another ad break and we go time for a wrap, yeah? Yeah, that's it, mate. Okay, and wrap time, go. Oh, actually, with the flight you can, uh, that we need to mention, sorry. Bang, done. Uh, and how to, how to end it? And oh, I was going to say as it goes out, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me. <laughs> God. Okay, that's going in the blooper reel. <laughs> I'll um, change mics. How's that one? No, that's, that's much better. That's great. Okay. Excellent. Okay, we'll continue with that. It said, there you go. I can deal with emergencies too. <laughs> well, it's just as well. <laughs> all, those, all those hours in the simulator, mate. <laughs> exactly. Finer and converting to fly the 380 is a, is a sort of 54-year-old, but they do. Well, there's a whole squadron of Kiowa helicopters flying past my window. Oh, the things you see. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not something you I see every day. I flew those as well. There you go. <laughs> well, as tradition on the airplane geeks, I believe we have to sing happy birthday to someone. Oh, no. Grant, well, since I didn't do it on the airplane geeks, here's a little duet on your behalf. And a one... And a two, and a three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Grant. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Grant, from the Vanderhoofs.